The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Do you have a sauna? Do you do that? I have a sauna, yeah. Yeah? Well, it? It, it, it had, um, initially it had issues because it, it was like a, you know, janky-ass uh, actual heater that, that died and we had to try Swap to get it another, out. Yeah, we had to order another one. They'd like, no luck with that company. So we just... It's like, oh, that company doesn't exist anymore. And so had to get a different one in there, but it's fine. It, uh, we just got done putting a bunch of the um, oil on it. So I saw an oil kind of, because Arizona, the, the sun just like cooks everything. Cooks the fucking wood. So there's like, it was cracking and spaces. So the real hardcore folks, they use the wood fired sauna, old school, like you're cooking pizza. Yeah. Well, they can do that. Yeah. I'm not that guy. Yeah. They sell those. I'm like, that seems like a lot of work. Plus, you got to kill trees. Yeah, we you know, uh, so we um you know we use it quite a bit actually uh, when it was when it was running. It, but then like I was on the road and then harvest, we didn't bother with it until just now we got it back running. It's so good for you, man. It's so good. I just got out. I I do it after every workout. It's like religious. I make sure I get in there right afterwards. It's hmm. the best. All right. You're training hard there, fella. Well, John Donaher. Teaching you finer points of triangles. That was fun to watch. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard on uh, as you I discussed this before. Uh, being on the road is uh, it's hard to find consistent training. Consistent training is your gym, that instructor in yeah. your city, your drive back and forth to your house, uh, doing two classes a day maybe if you can, you know, like that kind of thing. But like the road is like inconsistent. So the only consistency I can I can really rely on is picking a particular subject and going to people that I know that know how to do it mm. rather than allowing them to go hey I got this cool thing where you go upside down and stand on your head and do a backflip and like buggy choke don't please I don't I'm 58 please don't try to tell, tell me what a buggy choke is right now you can't do a buggy choke I might someday but right now i just want to fucking get the triangles right <laughs> buggy choke's a good thing to learn though, yeah man. i want to learn it but like i got it's let me let me learn it when i'm going to spend three weeks on it mm -hmm. and focused on it with somebody who understands the details somebody who also understands the counters because the counters end up being as important as understanding uh the actual thing just somebody caught a buggy choke recently in mma i think it was in bellator and the mm -hmm. dude picked him up and slammed him and he's out uh, yeah he got fucked up and then he beat the shit out of him i was like mm, yeah that makes sense because it's like you really are committed to that you've attached yourself to the person and that they're big and strong and can drop yeah you, drop you on some a surface you just don't have options like you do with a triangle you know like if someone picks you up with a triangle you drop down to the leg you, you let go like when you're a in a buggy chair, you're kind of committed, I think. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Maybe I could, should talk to, like, the Rotolo. Yeah, this is it right here. This No, this is not it. This is a different one. But people are getting these left and right now. You know, they someone pulled one off in the UFC the other day, and people didn't even know what the fuck it was. I right. had to kind of explain it. I'm like, this is so fascinating that this is a technique that is, uh, you know, for jujitsu. it's been around for, like, a year or so. He's out cold. Um... For jiu-jitsu, it's been around for, for years, rather. But for MMA, it's just, just starting to be applied. Right. But the beautiful thing about, especially that high level uh, of MMA, is that somebody's going to figure out how to, how to counter it mm -hmm. or, or prevent it. And then, then it's, then it's, uh, 
it's gone. Like, yeah. so, I mean, for a while, like, all of a sudden, people were catching uh, the von flu, and then all of a sudden, people were like, no, no, I'm gonna, we're gonna counter that now. But then every now and then, yeah, somebody well, catches one. OSP's the master. Mm-hmm. He's the best at it. He's caught more of them than von flu. Von flu, I think, invented it, but OSP, I think, has more than anybody. He gets it all the time. It's like it's a, a natural instinct when someone takes you down to hang on to that guillotine. You just want to have some sort of control over them. And then all of a sudden that person shifts weight and they're on top of you sideways. You're like, oh, shit. And then your arm is trapped. Good night. Yeah, it's a nasty joke. There's this jujitsu is so beautiful. It's so cool watching you guys today, like watching Donaher. Like I learned something, that position of the knee to the ear. Like I didn't know that. I'm, I kind of kind of did it anyway. But like watching the like he's so good at pointing out the finer details. Yeah. You know, he's just such a master. What a fucking interesting person he is. There's no John Donahers out there. No. Like if you said, no. I want a guy who was a professor of philosophy at Columbia University, who's a genius, who fell in love with jujitsu and is dedicated to it so much so that he walks around with a rash guard every day. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't even yeah. have regular clothes. I was like, I just, I just, I, you know, I was just kidding myself. Like, so John, are we gonna gonna do gi or no gi? Nah. Like, I think he abandoned the gi a long time ago, right? Yeah. He's like, no gi. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can do the good thing about doing the gi is you must be defensively responsible because you can't get out of stuff. You can't just power out of things. You know, like there's certain techniques that you just. You know, when you get trapped in them, you really have to mind your P's and Q's when you get out if you have a gi. Yeah. And, and, you know, I like I like training both because I like um, kind of training my mind to not rely on the gi. Mm-hmm. But then when it's when there's something like a lapel or, a, you know, a jacket or a, a gi available, then yeah, you know, I've trained how to deal with that piece of fabric that's your now tool for you. Well, I got very fortunate that I learned gi from John Jacques Machado. And John Jacques Machado only has one hand. His left hand, he only has a thumb. So John Jock's game was always overhooks and underhooks and clinch. And, you know, that's why he was so successful in Abu Dhabi in the early days, because all of his strategy completely applied to no gi. You know, and so right. I sort of, when I was training uh, with Guy with uh, Jean Jacques and no Guy with Eddie Bravo, I would do the same things. I would just have to be more responsible defensively when I train with the Guy. You just you just can't explode, right? You know, I got back problems. I probably shouldn't train as much Guy anyway because guys get a hold of it, and then you're you're dealing with lower back issues. Do you do you have back problems? What kind of back problems you got? Uh, just lower back stuff. Yeah, know, trying to do all the. Tried every, uh, it's just age and beat beat down and traveling, you know, like on the bus, trying to describe, I was just trying to describe bus life to your guys out there. Like, you know, it's, you're sleeping in kind of a coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of weird. You don't, you can't really sit up because there's a, a, there's something above your head. How and much that, time do you spend on the bus? Well, you know, between every gig, unless there's a day off. So, you know, we're doing two on, three on, and you're, so you're sleeping on the bus. But it's like, imagine sleeping and then four people on each corner of your bed every 45 minutes just shaking it fuck that yeah so you're like you're trying to get a solid seven eight hours sleep but you end up having to get 11 hours of sleep because three or four of that is you waking up in the middle of the night because you hit bumps Mm. bad roads you know so what do you do you have the driver drive you in the middle of the night yeah so after the show you're in the bus and you're going to the next city 
and you know depending on the depending on the drive if it's you know four hours six hours eight hours nine hours yeah i have friends who do that like burt kreischer does that that's his thing he loves tours and buses i'm not into it i don't love it um i enjoy performing the songs the travel part is the most difficult part and then you know so you're you're in air-conditioned uh scenarios so you're getting a little dehydrated you're trying to have to hydrate a little bit more than you normally would and you're having to perform that other that night so training is can be difficult you know, mm. on the road so try to do where I you know do whatever I can uh, to get training in yeah, yeah I admire people that like just hit gyms like random gyms to show up at places when they're on the road like that's a bold move you never yeah. know who you're gonna train with yeah no and that's and I'm I'm a I'm a pussy that way for sure. I I I'll, people that I know, I have yeah. the, I have the mats. They come to me, or if it's if I'm going to a place, it's because I know the person. Do you weight train at all? Not much. I used to a little bit. Um, it's but, really good for preventing injuries. Like yeah. when you're talking about your lower back situation, I'll uh, show you some stuff. Some of the equipment we have out there afterwards. Yeah. Uh, is it um, like kettlebell stuff? Kettlebell stuff's great, but okay. for the lower back, there's a machine called the Reverse Hyper that we have out there. Okay. That's phenomenal because it decompresses your back and it also strengthens all the muscles around it. All right. It was invented by Louis Simmons, who's this uh, genius. That's Louis right there. Hi, Rest Louis. in peace. Hello. He has left us and gone on to the next stage of existence. But that machine he developed because um, Louis was like a world famous power lifter, and his um, his back got fucked. And they told him that he had to get his back fused because it was compressed. And so he figured out a way to decompress the spine with uh, active decompression. So that thing, as it swings down, and you'll you'll feel it. I'll show it to you afterwards when we go into the gym. That, that thing decompresses your spine on the downswing, and then on the upswing, it actually strengthens the muscles around the back. Okay. Anybody that has the room for it and has, like, some issues with their lower back, even if you don't have issues, if you don't want to ever have issues, I can't recommend that machine enough. It's phenomenal for All the right. back. I will, I will take that advice. I just feel like when you get to our age, you must weight train. It's just, I don't think it's an if, and, or but. I think it's, you have to do it. Because you, otherwise you lose muscle density, you lose bone density, you, you know. We're deteriorating, Maynard. Yeah. Dete- Father time wants to fuck us over yeah. and grind us into dust. Yeah. And, you know, that's, and uh, I, this is me making excuses, but, you know, like there's a lot going on with the winery. Oh, yeah. So tr- even just going to do jujitsu during harvest is, like, nearly impossible because you're doing 10-hour days, and so I just don't have the time and you're in the sun so by the time your day is done you're like i need a beer and i need to go to sleep yeah do you um take electrolytes mm-hmm. what do you take uh i don't know the henry aikens turned me on to this little packet of stuff that uh it's pretty good uh do you know the company that makes no, it no i don't, I don't have I, there's a bunch yeah, of good ones yeah. i like yeah, so that's IVs, my that's like when i have when we have like a couple extra interns that are starting with us in the cellar because it's mm-hmm. arizona it's 100 you know yeah. it might be 90 degrees but it's 110 on the concrete just that all that radiant uh, yeah. heat off the off the concrete so i make everybody have an electrolyte drink to even just before we even start here drink this now we're going to take every 15 minutes stop grab water drink water just because it's a, uh, you know, it's it's not it's not easy working in the sun like that. I think you live a fascinating life. I think that the combination of the things that you do is so unique, 
you know, the fact that you run this winery and you're very serious about it, you make this amazing wine, and yet also you're making this fucking killer music, and you're doing the two of them together. I also I also make great pasta. Yeah, you do make great pasta. You make great pizza too, man. That pizza well, place. Steve makes the pizza, but yeah. Well, your okay. your restaurant, your Osteria. That's how you say it, right? Osteria, yes. That place is awesome. Yeah, it's good. Scottsdale. Yeah. Um, so I'm on here to talk about stuff. What do you really want to talk about? Because I'm, do- I'm doing stuff. So, what are you, doing? you know, full disclosure, I'm here because I'm pimping stuff that I'm selling. You're so, pimping? Yeah, I'm pimping. What are you pimping? Pimping, pimping my wares. Uh, so we did you this. You look like a pimp. Look at that jacket. Hey, hey. It's very pimp like. Hey. Forget about it. I love that jacket. Uh, so I, we did it when the when the whole lockdown shit happened, um, and we were we couldn't tour. Um, it sucked because I just I just released uh, the Tool album, and then on the heels of that, I released the Pussifer Existential Reckoning, and we couldn't tour Existential Reckoning. So what we did we figured out okay screw it everybody's doing these um, these uh, streaming events pay per views right. So we did one for right. the for the release of the album. And for Pussifer, it just made sense. That was the thing that for what we do with our characters and some of our sense of humor and the nature of, you know, some of the kind of interesting, uh, heady uh, landscapes that we kind of paint with some of the songs. It's just it's a really um, interesting format for us. And everybody in the band uh, went, this is a great, this is a good thing for us. So we did another one. We did um, Billy D and the Hall of Feathered Servants, which was all of the Money Shot album and all the luchador stuff uh, that we shot at the Mayan Theater. We released that one. So we went ahead and did this still during lockdown before we actually got back on the road. Uh, we did uh, Conditions of My Parole, the whole album called Parole Violator. So it's a bunch of stuff that's got Billy D and Major Douche and a bunch of the characters, Hildy and everything, along with everything from Conditions of My Parole. And we did uh, a bunch of the Vias for Vagina era songs uh, reworked them completely and shot that all in the Sunset Sound studio in Hollywood. There's a couple, there's come some bits in that one as well. But uh, those are two pay-per-views that are coming out um, this coming weekend, Halloween weekend. So. And do you do these pay-per-views off your website? Well, we're gonna we're yeah the PussiferTV.com is where they're gonna live for now as as a temporary thing. Eventually, we'll release them on Blu-ray and through iTunes and all there that it is stuff. There right here. There Double he is. Feature. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah, so it's it's just a it's just such a fun when I figured out when I figured out what it was and how we can do it and how we were like duck to water with it. We just all of us are really good with um, just the concepts, putting it all together. Matt Mitchell's an incredible, um, not only just a producer with, for the record and all engineer, but also his approach to figuring out how to put all these things together. Uh, and our team, his his girlfriend Elisa. You're living a fun life, dude. Oh, yeah. I like what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, it's just, uh, it's, I don't know, we just kind of went, uh, it's, it resonates with us, this approach of doing this thing. Like, the idea of, like, doing a, like, a series, a for series, that doesn't really, I think, full concert with all the cool stuff in it. Have just, you bandied about doing a series? Have you thought about it? Yeah, but I think, you know, uh, I'm a friend with uh, Mark Brooks who used to be a part of Metalocalypse and conversations I'd had with him and various other people that have been in the, involved in those things. They're like, 
as soon as you go down that path as somebody like Adult Swim or Comedy Central or whatever things, they just own that thing now. So mm. imagine like me getting in the wrong contract and now all these characters that I've developed, I can't even take these on the road now because some other douchebag. Oh, owns you can't them. do that. No, yeah, no, 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 we're not no. doing that. No, so, no, 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 no. But what so, about doing it independently? What about doing a series? You know, doing what, it yourself. Well, I think I think my my attention span. I think having being at the full hour, hour and change thing that makes sense. Doing like the small episodes and having to to build in all those stories for an entire season and have somebody expect following through with the next season. I don't think that I could. I don't think I could do that. Do you you have to kind of manage? You have so many interests. You kind of have to manage your time wisely, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the the, the the vineyard, the winery, requires so much focus and so much attention, mm-hmm. as does the creation of the music. Yeah, and I couldn't I couldn't do with the winery the success of the winery. I couldn't do it without people like uh, you know my wife and and Tim White and Calvin and the various people that are involved, uh, Aaron Weiss, uh, in kind of handling their jobs, the delegation of what you guys do. Um, I have to be there to make the decisions when it comes to the winemaking. I'm on the forklift. I'm the one, I'm the one you know, there uh, deciding what's going to go in what tank because every, everything ends up making, it changes the outcome of what's happening. And that's just the approaches of when we're picking the grapes, what grapes are we planting. All those things are come back to me, but the follow-through, if I didn't have... Jen and Tim and Calvin and Aaron and uh, all my vineyard managers, uh, Chris and Jesse, if I didn't have those people in place, I couldn't do it at all, at all. Mm. So it's, amount, it's, it's not just a matter of, matter of me organizing my time. It's also about me delegating to people that I can trust to make the decision beyond the initial framework that I've set in place. Now, when you make wine and you grow these grapes, the the grapes vary seasonally. They vary depend. Does it does the flavor vary dependent upon the weather conditions and what you do and don't do to the soil? Like, does that mature or change over time? Yeah, I'm, you know, in generally speaking, you're trying to pick a location that the soil itself is going to express something in this way for a very you know forever. That's that's going to be what that site does. You're not. And gonna... what are the what's the variables when it comes to the soil? Well, this is a word called terroir. Terroir. And, yeah, and it's everything. Everything. Every every completely untrackable thing that you could think of in terms of the levels of moisture. When that moisture hits that soil, how how deep does that moisture go in? The content, the geology of the soil, uh, the, you know, the weather patterns in that area and how they shift year to year. What grape, what actual clone did you plant in that spot and how that clone is going to react differently to all of those infinite variables of just the soil, never mind the infinite variables of the weather. And then when you choose to pick, how you choose to prune, how many clusters you decide to set on that particular vine, how you decide to train that vine is going to be a unilateral, is it going to be bilateral, is it going to be just a, a bush pruned, all these different variables about how you're going to do that farming, that affects the outcome. In general, though, if there's a particular region that does well with a particular grape, like Oregon with Pinot Noir, there might be various ways that they're pruning and, and, and adjusting the, how they're how they're training and growing that fruit, but it's generally speaking, it's going to be Pinot from Oregon. It's gonna it's gonna have a particular profile across that state. 
variations from region to region, from site to site, from producer to producer. But in general, it should have a signature that suggests Oregon Pinot. Mm. Allegedly. Allegedly. Do, do you follow, like, other types of... Do you, do you follow, like, uh, cigar growing or coffee growing or all these other different things that vary so much on the soil and things along those lines? Uh, coffee a little bit. Uh, we just picked up a... Well, it's not here yet. Do you like... You want uh, some? Have some of those? No, I'm good. I'm good. good. This is good stuff. Uh, uh, I had, I've had two today. So I'm going to yammer a little bit. I like yammering. Hey, yammer. That's what we do. Uh, I just picked up, um, it's not here yet, uh, we picked up a nice uh, modern roaster. So Because once I move the osteria that's in Cottonwood up to the new hill project, that building in Cottonwood will become uh, a coffee uh, roaster and breakfast brunch place. Mm. So we're actually, we're actually pursuing relationships with uh, beans. And, and you know importers of, of coffee beans so when you do that like uh, I'm good friends with Evan Hafer from Black Rival Coffee and he'll right. travel all right. over the world yeah and try out different beans and try out different things and that's what this stuff is right here yeah I've that's... gotten really into oh, this it is this is Black Rebel yeah well, then I, some of that, well so. then I got it yeah I got it sorry about, brother so. I didn't know it was yours brother I'm sorry yeah no he's cheers sir cheers Always good to see you yeah Evan makes some fucking phenomenal stuff Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I have my, you know, Todd Fox is basically my, my go-to guy. He, he actually has, he has that eye of the tiger on those kind of things. And he'll mm -hmm. point out things. Cause I'm just, dude, I'm, I'm living and I'm going and he'll go check out the difference between these Colombian beans and these Brazilian beans. And I'll go, okay. He'll be the one that kind of slows me down to focus on, check it out. You're like, you know what? I right. Like then he'll put stuff. You know, randomly we'll have some stuff. He goes, "What do you think of that one?" And I go, "I really like that." He goes, "That was those are the Brazilian beans." Mm. So so he's starting to help me kind of identify what it is that I like in a coffee in an approach because I don't like a band. I don't have to sound like Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin. I just have to sound like me and and express the way I'm going to express. So I don't need to be able to make every kind of coffee from every part of the world. I just need to figure out the ones that, that I like because I'm kind of, in a way, I'm making it for me, but I'm also selling it. But I'm not selling it to everybody. I'm selling it to the people that are going to like it and they're going to come to my place because that's unique. I had a guy on the podcast years back, Peter Giuliano, is that his name? He's a, like a legitimate coffee nerd. And he, we went down like a three-hour rabbit hole of coffee where he explained to me all the beans initially came from Ethiopia and how their flavors changed as they moved them to South America and grew yeah, in that's, Colombia. That's an expression of terroir. It's just, it changes mm, yeah. clone to weather to soil to grower to roaster. I mean, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down with that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, like, you know, your average large commercial facilities that have a consistent coffee that's not great, it's usually over-roasted mm -hmm. or they overheat it when they, yeah. when they do the coffee because they, they're just trying to cover up flaws. Right. You well, know, like, it's just like when people talk about coffee and they talk about commercial places, most of the people are buying stuff that's just, they're not really buying coffee. They're buying sugar water. Right. It's got caffeine in it. It's just... <laughs> I was at. Uh, I went to do a, an article and a training session out at Gunsight, in uh, in 
outside of Pre- in Paulden, Arizona. It's a you know old school training facility, and I went there. You know, early morning, we we're going to do this whole gun range thing, and uh, this guy named Charlie, I'm sitting at the table. He goes, "You want some coffee?" I'm like, "Sure." He goes, "Cream and sugar." I normally don't, but like it sounded like that's what he, yeah, yeah, sure. He goes, I asked you if you wanted coffee, not pudding. Like, I <laughs> so fucking, he's testing you. Fucking clotheslined me. First, out of the box. Fuck you. <sighs> um, but I fell for it. Yeah, I only go black now. It's been like a couple of years now. I only drink black coffee. I do, I do a little bit of cream. Uh, and I think, and I've, and I'm, I've been pretty consistent with that lately because, because I'm now I'm focusing on what beans I like. And for me, I know it's going to change once I once I remove the cream. But that's the lens that I see the coffee through. Is I have to have the cream in there, because that's how I'm going to drink it. So I'm trying to figure out what ones I like, and with that lens, I know that if I remove that that lens, it's probably going to change my perception of what coffees I like. It's funny the cream debate whether or not you should put cream in coffee. It's it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I think there's far bigger issues in the world to discuss. There definitely <laughs> are. There definitely are. But it's just a, such a funny. Leave my cream thing. alone, man. Listen, I like it. I like cream. I, I like cream in a Kona, a Kona coffee. Yeah, I like a little cream in there. But generally, I just drink it black now. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm planning trips to Hawaii because I want to establish some relationships with some Maui growers mm. so that I can actually part make that be part of um, what I'm doing. In Arizona, but also because I get to go train with uh, Luis. Oh, okay, yeah. Maui Jiu-Jitsu. Luis was my first instructor ever. He taught me my first private lesson. Really? Yeah. Yeah, at Hickson's. Okay. Yeah. On Pico. Yeah, 1996. Yep. I must have just missed you. Yeah, well, I only went there a couple times, and Mm -hmm. then I found Carlson Gracie's, and I was so dumb, I didn't know. I'm like, oh, this is a different place, but it's the same name. Must be the same thing. And I, I caught Carlson Gracie's right when Vitor, when they were still calling him Victor. Right. And he had just competed uh, against uh, John Hess in Hawaii. That was his debut. He was like 19 years old. And then he was about to make his UFC debut. Yeah, I remember, I remember sitting behind um, Vitor, uh, one row behind him, when, uh, when Silva broke his leg. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, yeah. And, but it's like, <laughs> but here's here's Vitor's head, and I'm like having to figure out how to see around this fucking brick of a head. His head is huge. Well, he, so. he when he got up to like 240 pounds when he fought Randy Couture, it was preposterous. No, he was, he was an enormous man. Yes, but that those days, like those early days of the UFC, were so interesting because like. It's there's nothing like MMA in that regard or jiu-jitsu where you can go back just 25 years and you go and look at the difference between the art form then and what it is now. It's just evolved and leaps it's, and bounds. It's evolved but there's also yeah, there's some, you know, we could we can go on for hours about it. But when I first started at Pico, it was you could tell that there was a, you know, there was a there was a, a club within the club, mm-hmm. and I was never going to have access to that information. And then oh, there, back then there was, yeah. yeah. And back then it was really weird. And you're that. not allowed to go to somebody else's gym. So right. I'm traveling, and I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't train with mm. anybody. I had to like, I had to wait till I got back to LA to to pick it up, unless I brought somebody with me on the road to train 
some techniques I had no idea what the hell we were doing, right? Yeah, I was very fortunate that Jean-Jacques did not have that attitude. Jean-Jacques was just, go train, my friend. Train, train every way you can. Yeah. And he was such a great guy, and he had such a loyal uh, student base that he had zero concerns about people leaving him. You know, right. his concern was just that you trained. Right. Which and is I very didn't, fortunate. I didn't, I didn't have that because it was just such a weird at that moment. But it was a famine mentality in the early days. Mm-hmm. There were well, there was also lawsuits going on because like uh, they were like the Gracies were suing other people for using the Gracie name. Right. You know, like uh, Orion didn't he sue Carlson? I think they. I'm they, sure they sued. So he sued someone for using the term Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, even though Carlson's last name was Gracie. I don't know if it was Carlson. I don't want to misrepresent it, but I know that there was some lawsuits involved because Gracie Jiu-Jitsu itself became like a different thing. They were calling that a different thing than just straight Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Right. And now I think it's the op. Like, I, you know, I'm not sure where it is now, but whatever. I give up. Well, you I mean, that's where it becomes fascinating, where a guy like John Donaher kind of like leaps to the top of this thing with just this analytical perspective that's completely free of dogma. Right. All he cares about is what is the correct way to do things. It was the most effective right. in tried and true competition format. Like, this is what we've learned right. without any bullshit. Yeah. And, that, you know, that, that's been great for me to be on the road training with somebody like, like John, um, like my friends at Easton and Denver and, you know, all mm-hmm. of the, you know, yeah. Dave and Dan, uh, Dan Camarillo. They all have a slightly different approach mm-hmm. to the things. Some of the guys are going to be a little more self-defense oriented, so they're going to be looking to check your position and make sure you can't get hit in the face. Right. Uh, yeah. But if you, but I'm a grown-ass man, and so you go, okay, I am playing jujitsu. I'm not worried about getting hit in the face. I'm going to train this position to understand how to move my body because that's what it is. It's about. It's about. If, at the end of the day, it is about me taking you offline and advancing, but really, it's about you and your self-discovery and your ability to for self-control, me being able to control my body to do a thing. And if you don't, if you don't have that self-awareness of understanding that this isn't just you flopping around like a fish accidentally kneeing some dude in the face while you're going for a move, you're mm-hmm. not really progressing if you don't understand that it is about your self-control. So, okay, yeah, that's, self, that's a self-defense approach to the jujitsu, but I'm also conscious enough to know, okay, I'm going to do this I'm going to play around with X card and see what happens because I've mm-hmm. never done it, and I want to see how that what that is. How much does that? How much does training in jujitsu help just your your mind, the way you approach life and the way you think about things? Well, it's it's the like I've mentioned before on your show. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. This is not does not come easy for me. I am the perfect example of a klutzy dude who this is not this is not natural for me to do. Um, and because of that, because of that, it, well, forever it was stressful. And so you're activating your mind in a stressful situation, and you know you're still getting oxygen in your blood, and you're moving, and you're and you're and you're opening up things. But at some point, it became more like chess instead of this. Oh my God, this guy's going to tap me. Well, of course he's going to tap you. <laughs> If you just get that in your head, like, I'm going, I might lose today. I'm probably going to lose today. Be comfortable in that moment of understanding how to, like, be conscious and aware in that moment 
so that you can recognize the moment before you get to the moment now for next time. Mm-hmm. That was, that was a weird shift for me, getting to a position of like, I'm in a compromised position, but I'm going to get to a safe position within the compromised position, take a deep breath, and pay attention to what he does next, so that next time I can be ahead of what he does next. Weird mental mm. thing. And then training enough that you could store all this data and have it accessible yes. when these scenarios present themselves again. Yeah, because again, it's about body control and understanding what your body's gonna do naturally now. The drilling, the drilling, the drilling, I cannot stress enough, the drilling in a safe environment with somebody who's not trying to tear your head off, with a good training partner who's gonna give you the resistance you need mm-hmm. to be able to rep, you know, the repetition and then replicate that movement yeah, we're talking about jujitsu, but we're not. We're talking about making pasta. We're talking about making wine. These are things yes. that apply to every area of your life. If you can find one that's more difficult for you than the other ones, you'll improve the things that come naturally to you by focusing on the thing that doesn't come naturally to you. Yeah, it's and, the great quote from Miyamoto Musashi. Once you understand the way broadly, you can see it in all things. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. That's uh, that's the beauty of martial arts, and that's the that's the thing that's missed by the people that don't practice it. That think of it as like some sort of brutal endeavor for you know macho brutes, assholes. Yeah, I mean, but you know, we know those guys. They exist. Yeah, they exist. But they need yeah. to exercise too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, but you know, it's, I think um, that just that. Finding that thing that's actually challenging you physically, mentally, spiritually helps with other things that come along. Because there's, you know, the world's weird right now. That's there's things. I don't know. I feel like we're we're helping train people to understand that the world goes through a lot of changes. There's going to be a lot of stress. Nobody's going to. Ninety percent of the people of the world are not going to agree with you. And if you can get through that mentally and emotionally and spiritually to know that there's something on the other side. Yeah. I think things like jujitsu, things like growing food, <laughs> resigning yourself to nature and having to navigate farming, those kind of things, they start to reset you in a way where, like, it's not this, not everything has to be an argument. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's you just having to navigate the fucking weather. Yeah. If you can get to that mindset, you get a lot more done, honestly. And you'll survive shit that some people won't because they're so focused on the petty, dumb shit that they're going to miss the bigger picture. I think a lot of the petty stuff is people also want you to agree with them. That's not really necessary. You know, so many people, they have a, a, an opinion and they feel like if they can't convince you that they're correct or they can't force their opinion on you, that somehow or another it invalidates their own perspective. Yeah. I find that, you know, going back, again, we go right back to jujitsu. Mm-hmm. We know guys that are like, no, this is the only way to do this move. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I just watched this guy beat the shit out of everyone at ADCC, and he's not doing the things that you're telling me that you're supposed to only do. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, like, this is the only way that, well, you know, like, using Hickson, example. Hickson says, only do this, 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 and this. You never do these other things. It's like... Have you not watched his Valley Tudo videos? He did everything the opposite of what you just said. 
Mm-hmm. He had his nose before his toes. He had like all these things that you're like, you're not supposed to do. And it's like, he, you know, those things are not necessarily 100%. So you have to be open-minded. You have to uh, disagree with it being one way. Yeah. I mean, it really is an art. And then way. be open to hearing the way that you didn't think it was. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these variables, like the, the size of your frame, you know, the way your body moves, whether or not you're flexible. There's so many variables that will present themselves in this sort of equation of how do you express yourself on the, on the mat. Mm-hmm. Now that, you know, the one thing that I was talking to Donald, the guy you just met today, uh, you know, you were, you were trying to convince a couple of friends like, to take a class. You know, they're not very athletic, but they, you know, musician friends like, yeah, just come in and take the white belt class. You're in a safe environment. And under, uh, getting to understand, like, when you walk in the room and you see a dude shaped like you, that might not be the, the biggest sniper in the room. It might be that geeky kid in the corner who looks like he probably works in a library. Yeah, oftentimes and, it is. And he's the one who's going to fuck you up. He looks like he's like, you know, the nerd in the corner with the glasses and the goofy hair. Yeah. He's the guy who's going to fuck you up. The nerd assassins. Yeah. Well, because they're analytical. You know, and jiu-jitsu uh, favors the analytical approach. You you analyze positions and analyze possible counters and, and traps that you could set. That's why I love guys like Mikey Musumeci. Because he's, you know who he is? Uh, he is uh, a fascinating fellow who uh, I had him on the podcast. He's like the smiliest assassin, thick glasses, only eats pizza and pasta. And he only eats once a day. Trains, no bullshit, 12 <laughs> hours a day. Just constantly drilling and going over positions. Big ass smile on his face. He's multiple time world champion. Okay. And he's just fucking assassinating people. We have we have a guy, a new guy at our gym, uh, brown belt out of Easton, and he and he has he's kind of a geeky dude, tall with glasses. Name's Clay Wimmer. He's from a mall's gym in yeah. Colorado. Yeah, he's out, out of a Centennial. I think he got his uh, brown belt uh, from Valor. Uh, and he <laughs> when he's when he's rolling, he's got this creepy grin on his face, like. <laughs> What are you? You're creeping me out, dude. Stop <laughs> grinning. And he's like, he's one of those backpack fuckers. He gets red on your back, and you're like, you're screwed. And he got there. You know how he got there, but he got there. And he's grinning the whole time, like sometimes chewing gum. You're like, are you? You're chewing. You're chewing gum, and you're grinning. You're creeping me out, man. That's Mikey. <laughs> Pull up Mikey Musumeci uh, takes Imanari's back. There's a video of him. Watch this. Look, this is he already took the back. Watch how he uh, he takes it back. Go go back a little bit of ways and you see the position. So they're in a scramble, and uh, Imanari, who's like the master leg locker, watch how Mikey takes his back. This is so fucking beautiful. He takes him out. This is Mikey on top here, and this is again. This is against Imanari. Look at this back take. Look at that. Oh, he got that that uh, neck grab. Do you see how sweet that was? Yeah. Look how sweet. Back up a little bit. Look how sweet that was. So he's in the look at that man, fucking so slick. Yeah, and that's and again that's him doing it to Imanari, who's just a fucking legend. And he traps the arm. I mean, just incredible stuff. Super super high level. And that that's Mikey. And I think he's twenty four. You got it. And look at him. <laughs> that's Mikey. <laughs> I love that guy. He's amazing. And it's to me that he's my my favorite example when I show people. $50,000 bonus for that incredible performance.
Yeah. Wow. He's just such a sweet guy, too. And uh, so talented. That, that's what I love about jujitsu. That that that's like that's a world champion, you know. Right. That it's just it's it's an art form. I mean, he might as well be playing the violin, you know. He might as well be you know what, making paintings or something. Yeah. It's like that's what he's doing. Yeah, it's a beautiful. It's yeah, and like I said, it's hardest one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It's fucking hard as shit. Yeah, yeah. When I that's I there's a bond that you have. Like I hung out with uh, Guy Ritchie this past weekend in London. And uh, we had that the same sort of conversation. Like he did my podcast a few years back, and he said I wanted to do your podcast because I knew you were a jujitsu guy. He's like I knew we would have like very common perspectives on things. Like there's a thing if you've done it and mm-hmm. you've gotten to like he's a black belt under Henzo. Guy, guys, re- he's really legit. You know, and you would never know. Like he's like super unassuming guy, but then you start talking to him about details and stuff. You're like oh, you're fucking legit. He's for real. I love those guys. Yeah. Those, you know, the guys that doesn't really happen anymore, but like the kind of guy that you wish you were at the end of the bar in some scenario where two dudes or one guy is just fucking with the nerd at the bar. And you gotta go <laughs> before cameras, before, you know, before these, so you could actually get away, he could actually get away with it, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, in a bar. And I'd like just go, oh, this is going to be great. Did you see the video of uh, Henzo Gracie taking some guy down on the subway? Yeah. <laughs> some asshole just yeah. got really shitty. And you just like, my friend, <laughs> you've made a big mistake. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that anymore. It's a, it's a way of life, though. It really is. It's a, it's a way of, like, making this thing so difficult that the rest of life seems – Maybe not less complicated, but more understandable. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Through that struggle of that thing, you can kind of like apply those lessons to other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, I, you know, I've, over the years, I've applied it to, of course, writing and, and putting music together. Mm-hmm. That, that's definitely that that struggle of like you hit a you hit a wall um you have to navigate you know through around or over when you out. write do you write um on your own do you write with other people like how do you create music do you create music alone it's it's, it's like it, f- for me it's it's okay i'm gonna train i'm gonna train jujitsu okay we're gonna bring it back to that because that's that's our that's our that's our uh, our our base here uh if I'm, you know, if I'm going to train with somebody, every diff- every body type is going to be a different thing, and I can't just, you know, how it is. If you if you're just going to force your will on some other dude, then it's just two idiots f- trying to force their will on each other, and you're going to gas out. You have to see what this thing is, and this person how they're approaching you. Are they approaching you standing? Are they butt scooting? Are they gonna, you know, are they gonna, you know? whatever they're going to do each song and every riff or whatever is a reaction to what i'm seeing or hearing right so i'm not just going to come in with a lyric and come in with a line on top of some kind of rhythm or a melody i have to pay attention to what's in front of me and uh, and work around that thing and listen to it and pay attention to it and drill so how does this process start like say you have a, a blank slate Blank slate. So for me, there's not really a blank slate. It's me going to maybe it's me going to um, Matt and going, okay, just in general, uh, I'd like to see 
what we can do with there's some sounds that I heard on this, you know, maybe as a movie soundtrack, maybe it was a, a record, you know, maybe I'm picking out like mandolin or, you know, some kind of a particular pedal from a guitar or a film that has like a Rykuder riff going through it or something, a vibe. And maybe Matt has picked up, in the case of Existential Reckoning, he picked up a bunch of amazing old synths like Fairlight and uh, Synclavier and all this kind of cool shit that, that's... In a way, it's... What are you saying, synths? Synthesizers. Synthesizers. Yeah, so old school, like, you know, craft work, you know, um, yes, uh, old, like, you know, Michael, oh, okay. Michael Jackson's, like, mm. like, that familiar sound that's from a very specific thing. And you can manipulate those sounds to a point, but you're kind of, you're kind of boxed in on the what those things can do in some cases. Like, the Fairlight's very it's going to give you a very specific sound. Well, there now there's the framework, and he'll come up with a melody or a thing, and he'll throw it to me, and I'll just drill, drill, drill that thing into my head, driving around with it in my car, truck, you know, putting headphones on on the plane, and just listen in the cellar. I'll put it on while I'm working on stuff, just to, just to put that thing on loop and drill it into my head of what it is so that I can figure out how to go through, around, or over this thing. Work mm. with it, work against it intentionally. So it's, it's, a, it's a mathematical, three-dimensional geometric puzzle. So when you're through. listening to it and you're just like going over in your head, you're just like allowing it to talk to you? Correct, correct. You know, mm. just like we were going over today with Danaher. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we're in this position, but did the guy retract his elbow or did he leave his elbow forward? Mm. Is the riff giving me an elbow is the, or is the, mm. is the riff cutting me off on a particular rhythm or a melody? Because, you know, you might have a melody in mind, but you get closer to the end of that riff and it might have changed directions and your note is sour. So you have to pay attention to what note goes with that thing and rhythmically as well as sonically, like, you know, melodically. Mm. So it's a... It's you getting used to this thing, cause, and he might be able to move it. I might go back, hey, man, can we, can we adjust a few things in here and move forward? So it is definitely a step-by-step -step piece. I will respond. Then he will give me back a thing that he's developed further, and I'll respond to his response. And then at some point, I'll go to Karina and go, hey, I'd like to hear, before I go too far, I want to hear what you would do over what I've done over what he's done. And now it's a tryout of, of us uh, navigating uh, that sonic landscape. So it, it, it must be an interesting dance in that you have to do it with people that have sort of the same engagement that you do, the same level of discipline, the same... Same level of discipline, but strengths where I don't have strengths, I have strengths where they don't have strengths. So you're, it's, it's, you're, kind, of, you're kind of filling in each other's gaps with a common goal. Mm. So, yeah, so we have we had we definitely have common things that we like, but we also bring different strengths to the table to make it work as a whole. That's one of the more challenging things I would imagine about a band is that you kind of have to get everybody on the same sort of you have to remain open your your listening skills are should be as important and as honed as your regurgitating skills. I'm successful, and this is what I do. Fuck you. No. Then it just sounds, starts sounding the same. 
Mm. You're, you're not really you're not progressing as an artist to like kind of reinvent yourself and see things from a different perspective. Do you, my opinion? Do you see this like uh, do, this process? Does it? Do you see this process clear more clearly now than you did years ago? Like, is this something that you get better at? Oh yeah, like anything. It's just that's you, you. You get better. I think you just get better at listening the more you listen, and I've. You know, it's like, it's like anything. There's a, there's a, an action reaction, and then there's there's some kind of reinforcement of that behavior, right? I found that when I started listening more and reacting more as a listener, the the reinforcement of that behavior was that there was a better thing that came out the other end, rather than just sounding like something I'd already done before, jammed over something that somebody else has already done before. So you reinvent. Mm. And then the behavior is reinforced because the thing, not not from somebody externally, but like from the thing that you're hearing, you go, I've never heard me do that before. Great. Keep honing that knife. How long can you do that for? Ever. Forever. Yeah, just listen forever. Because you're you're going to be hearing it. At a different age, you're going to be hearing it differently than you would 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Right. Because and you have for different you, life experiences. So. As long as it's engaging and as long as it's fascinating, you keep right. doing it. I will definitely, you know, probably already, I, you know, I'm in, have my head up my own ass, but, you know, I, I won't be relevant to the TikTokers of the world because it's just not, it's not on their radar. It's not those people that listen to the things they listen to and the things that respond, the people that respond to the things they respond to now, I'm not necessarily relevant. But there's an entire generation of people that's not just my generation. There's people older than me and much younger than me that have grown with this thing. And so as they're aging, they're 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 discovering it right right can you think do you think about that though do you think about like whether or not you're relevant or whether or not you can't because you'll start being desperate and getting plastic surgery and looking like a (laughs) fucking alien and trying to insert yourself into some stupid fucking thing i'm not talking about anybody yeah no you can't (laughs) i'm not talking about my peers fuck man no if you're alive you have to assume other people are going to if you're on a vibe, there's other people that are going to be on that vibe. There's so many people. Yeah. You can't, yeah. The the, the quest for relevancy is like, oh, boy. It it, it, it it turns to desperation very quickly. Yeah. It reeks. So just maintain your art, dude. Like, just, and then, I don't know. We're just having, we're having fun creating. Well, you guys are also so diverse. Like, your sounds are so diverse. And I think that's one of the, the strengths of you is that with Tool and Pussifer and, like, you know, Perfect Circle, you've done so so much different stuff. It's and like... That's the listening part. Mm. What does Billy do? What, does, what do Adam, Justin, and Danny do? What does Matt and Karina do? I'm listening to what they're doing and having that conversation with them and building on those relationships. Yeah. They're different conversations. They're different people with different life experiences. The art and the sounds that come out of those people is going to be 100% different. Even if I'm the common thing, if you if if nobody knew that I was in Pussifer, and you were just listening to it, you might pick up that I that kind of sounds like the guy from Perfect Circle, but probably not. Like it would be a, a whole different experience if you didn't yeah. know that I was involved. Yeah, for sure. 
that's why I think these kind of conversations are so interesting to other artists because they get to like see this sort of like you know you've you've been around long enough that you're you're you have a foundation you know you're solid in your approach and there's a lot of people out there that are like am I doing it right I mean what am I doing I don't know I, is this the right way to do it is should I change it should I what what should I do and then I have that you know I you know I'm fairly confident in some things but I try to like change it up as much as I can I guess you know that's you know gonna start roasting coffee soon so maybe that's one of those like resets of like I don't know what I'm doing right let's relearn this thing that I don't have any idea and it might suck those are valuable right those new things I I think I think so I think just that you know it could be written off to like midlife crisis but I think it's also um just understanding that chaos and change is part of life and if you can kind of get yourself to recognize that things aren't, you're not going to just get to a spot and it's going to be that for the rest of your life. It's always going to be something changing. I think it also speaks to the the, the con the complex aspect of thinking itself, because like, you know, what is what are thoughts and creativity, and how do you keep them inspired and engaged? And I think one of the ways to do it is to become a beginner again. Yeah. And, to just try some... That's why I, I started getting back into jujitsu. Uh, it took me forever to get back in because uh, I was living in a remote area. But then when I got into it, I was progressing. And then I felt like, okay, th- I need to, you know, I need to ruin my day. So I took up Muay Thai, which is like way, like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not great at jujitsu. Holy shit, I really suck at Muay Thai. Well, you also did it after a hip replacement. Which is pretty wild. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not smart. So, it's just but you are that. because it's like, why not? It fucking they fixed it. Yeah, but that works. That kind of a reset where you're you're, mm-hmm. you're jolting your your brain into uh, understanding a, a whole different thing you don't you're not familiar with. The reset is huge, I think. Yeah, and you know now, it, but you know. I'm I'm a fairly successful musician. I have a backup plan. I have these things. I think on some level I can do that. Not a lot of people can think in terms of like their entire career of a reset of their entire career because there might not be something for you. You might not be able to do that. Right. I can I can kind of get away with that for now. Well, it's also harder if you're boxed into it. Like if you're a pop star, you know, you're boxed into. Oh yeah. The, you know, you have like a very specific genre that you're successful in. Very hard for those people to branch out. Yeah. You know, because I'm sure you've met people that are fucking huge in their in their their genres that are just pop star huge. And I don't I don't know. I haven't met a lot of those people. I have no idea if there's if there's a core person to have a conversation with there. I have no idea because I'm not... I'm there not tra- is with some of them. I don't travel in those circles. Like with Miley Cyrus, there is. She's fascinating. That's a... She's a unique little artist. I haven't like, met her. She's wild. She's very interesting. She's a real artist, you I know, talk, but she's I, also a I make, pop star. I make fun of her in our new show. <laughs> not bad. It's like, I think she would find the joke very I'm funny. sure she would. She's got a good sense of humor. She's yeah. fun. But, you know, she's... A, a pop star but she's also like she experiments with shit and mm-hmm. she's you know she's trying to find whatever it is that in, that's engaging to her right 
Yeah, and I, 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 I have friends that are mutual friends with her, and I think that's, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, she's she's digging. Well, I became interested in her when she did. She covered Jolene. You know, I, I heard that song. I'm like Jesus, like there's a soul to that girl's voice that yeah. belies her age and you know and what you would expect from her. Right. You know, to cover that Dolly Parton song and do it in this like very unique way with a like a beautiful fucking sound to it. Right. You know. Yeah. But yeah. again, trapped in that machine. Yeah, for sure. And that was that. You know, she literally had to start swearing every other word to break out of at least part of that. You're so trapped into you mm -hmm. know a Hannah Montana right. thing that in order to get out of that. You had to start, you know, almost like go full Mike Patton and start smearing shit on everything just to <laughs> fucking erase it, you know, to start over. Well, that just that happens to a lot of those people. They just get stuck in this thing that's like uber successful. And yeah, but, you know, it seems like she's she's figured out a way to wiggle. She has. And broaden out of it. Wiggle, yeah. Wiggle out of it. But man, what a fucking what a salmon trip up the fucking waterfall that is yeah because there's so many people with their hands out so many people mm -hmm. don't that have a piece of that so many people that don't want you to 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 branch out because you know anything you do that's not that they think could ruin the gravy train that they're that they're enjoying right so you can see how that might be and the egos involved like the of the popularity and the and the the attention and the money the people that you get to hang out with. Yeah. I'm just not, I'm not in that circle. So I don't know, I don't know. I'm not wired for it. I'm not, I'm not, that's not part of my world. I'm not, I'm not judging it at all, but I, I, that's not part of my world. I don't know how I would react if all of a sudden, you know, fucking name five huge pop celebrities of actors and musicians, if they go, hey, we want to come to your show. Like, what did I? What did I do? What did I, you know, what, what did I? What? How does that? What is what I'm doing have make of any interest to you? Right. Like I don't know what that would look like, or what? What are you seeing? It's somebody. What? <laughs> I would be very suspicious of those people coming and actually reacting to what we're doing. But is that because you box them yourself? Like you decide that like what they've created is all they are. No, no, I, I just would want be wondering what, yeah, maybe, I guess, maybe I'm being judgmental. Uh, it's easy to do, right? Yeah, Especially, but, it's fun to do. But, like, <laughs> because I know that I'm busy, and those people are busy. So mm -hmm. why would they stop what they're doing to come and do, to, to pay attention to this thing? They already have all this shit going on. Like, why would they come to the thing? And I'm talking about numbers, not just one mm -hmm. person, like... Five or six people all at once decided to come, you know, like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and fucking Brad Pitt and somebody, somebody, and somebody wants to come to your show. I'd be like, are they, were they promised something? Is there something <laughs> I don't know? Like, why would you come here? Right. Why, what, what, what interest would you have in this thing? And I, that doesn't, this, sh how is this even on your radar? You know, that would be, I would be very suspicious of that. That's funny that you'd be suspicious. Yeah. Do you watch Black Mirror? Uh, I started to. Uh, back when it first 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 came out, and there's some of those episodes are pretty fucking amazing. Amazing. Well, yeah. there's a really wild one with Miley Cyrus, and okay. in this one, she has like this evil aunt who's like controlling her career, 
and uh, they download, spoiler alert, they d- download, download her mind into this little doll, like this like robot doll that you can buy. And it's like your little Miley Cyrus friend, but it actually is her inside this thing. And so multiple versions of her. Yeah, but it's like it's I, I don't want to fuck this up because people should watch it. It's a fun episode, but it's her trying to escape her pop lifestyle, but she's being controlled by all these people that have you know vested interest in her making extraordinary amounts of money with that right. that, that genre, and then she gets out of it eventually. Right. But it's pretty wild. But it's that thing. It's like speaks to that, that struggle. One. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you know you assume that Justin Bieber's just that fucking guy that sings like a girl. You know, like he sound like first heard Justin Bieber, like what a beautiful voice that girl has, and then like that's a guy. I'm like, oh, what? Oh, he's young. Oh, okay. And then you know he matures over time and he becomes Mm -hmm. this different thing. It's like, but it's still a human. Yeah. You know, like if he wanted to go see a Pussifer show, I could imagine you'd be like, what? He would be welcome. Sure. Sure. I wouldn't. I I would never say those people can't come to my. You know, I would be happy to entertain. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm an asshole, but not that kind of an asshole. You're not a snob. I'm not a snob, no. Yeah, 100% welcome to come to those things. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't exclude anybody from that. Art, it's art. Yeah. You know, that might, something might resonate with them that would end up showing up in something that they did next, right? Um, we all Artists all feed off each other in some way. There's like, I'm inspired by a bunch of different films tv shows bands Mm, for sure visual artists you know those things inspire me and they get me thinking on you know the next thing that i'm going to do and how do i build on that and make it make sense well music is inspirational in such a weird way too it's like a drug you know like prison sex that song there's something about that song that makes me want to lift like when I'm lifting weights, that song is just like the, the guitar riff. It just fucking, it just like gives you extra juice. Okay. You know, there's something about music that it provides, like it opens up a specific pathway in you that that it's like a drug. It really is. It's an amazing drug of inspiration. And, and it can be a, it's a neural map mm. in a way that opens up. That ins- whatever that is you're getting, there's a rhythm and a tone to that thing that's inspiring those myelin connections in you to do the th- do a thing. I c- I could see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It also it speaks to especially like older music is like a time map. It's like a map of the culture when that song was created, who this person is, how they fit into the culture, whether or not they're around anymore. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I listen to Hendrix in particular, it's like Hendrix to me is like a map of the 60s in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's like the rebellion from the Vietnam it's, era. It's a, it's a, it's a wine. It's, it's mm. something that happened on that day at that time on that site in that place made that certain way. That's a time capsule of that, of that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And unique in that way that you could kind of listen to it uh, and it transports you. It takes you there. Like Janis Joplin does that for me too. Okay. It brings me to that time, you know, it's just just like you try to imagine the context of how when it was created, who she was. Right. So going back to your original question of how we write, you have to be true to me for the way that I write. 
is I'm trying to be true to who I am today. Because those are waypoints, like you, as you pointed out, those are waypoints along your particular history and your experiences. So if I can be in the present moment when I'm writing those things about what's happening, how I'm feeling about things, even though some of the experiences are life, lifelong experiences, how I perceive those experiences today and how I can attach those to a, a bed of rhythms and sounds and melodies will end up hopefully being what you're talking about. It's a waypoint for that moment in time that now you can go back and revisit. Yeah. That's, it's such a unique art form in that way. that it just, it just encapsulates so many different things, lyrics and sounds and feelings, and, and just you can just turn it on anytime you want. I mean, what a weird time, too, because like you just talk to your phone and tell your phone, hey, play me this. <laughs> Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So strange. It is wild. The access, the access to that art is so instantaneous now. Just so bizarre. You but like to... any but like anything, it's a it's it's a hammer, right? You can use that hammer to build something, you can use that hammer to destroy something. This is this is such an awful thing and such an amazing thing, depending mm-hmm. on how you're how you're dealing with it. Like yeah. You can use it to gain more control, more money, or you can use it, you know, to share things with people. And, right. And help them find a way. And also, like, having a level of discipline is so important when engaging with that thing. Because that thing can, you know, we were talking about TikTok earlier today, about mm-hmm. how the parent company of TikTok is using TikTok to specifically monitor the locations of American individuals and how fucking crazy that is. That, I, d- I deleted it. Yeah, I never had it. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, I, right away I was like, what? And then when they were talking about banning it, I started looking into it. I was like, that thing's, that's a problem. And then we read on one day uh, d- during the podcast, we read the terms of service and what it's allowed to do, if you, in which nobody reads. And uh, Agree. Yeah, you agree. agree. Everybody agrees. But it's so fucked up that when I read it, I couldn't believe that it was real. We had a, I had to go over it from multiple different sites. And then, like, I want to know that this is – am I being accurate with this? Is it, does it really have access to your computers that aren't connected to TikTok? If you have the same – like, if you use the same email account, if you have the same computer and a network, yes. Yes, it does. It has access to everything you do, which is fucking banana. So I read that over, and one of my kids – came home and she said that her friend was mad because her mom listened to me talk <laughs> about the terms of service and made him yeah. delete TikTok from yeah. his phone. Yeah, it's new world. It's a whole new world. But it's on the other the side, idea. there's so much there's so much interesting stuff that you can get off of it. I'm I'm so much more educated about so many different subjects because of it. Because of that access to to yeah, if I you know I just um, I just harvested um, some uh, some of the stuff from our, our produce from our garden. I'm like I have this rant these random things. I'm gonna try to do something with these random things. <laughs> just type in the random ingredients recipe, like all these things, and there's twelve fucking recipes involving these things. And now I can make this amazing salad with these things. It's fucking delicious. And my wife's going, what the fuck is this? Yeah. You know, so there's those benefits of like, how do I, how do I roast coffee again? How do I, you know, how do yeah. I, how do I make this particular sauce for a pasta? 
it's all right there. How do I fix this this specific power washer that's broken? How do I fix this power washer so I can get back to cleaning bins? Oh, here's a whole like four video options of like understanding how to you know fix that that mechanical thing that you could never you would have to take it to somebody mm. ten years ago. Yeah, we just don't have the the user manual for how to use it correctly. Right. You know. It's like everyone knows you can't drink whiskey all day long. You'll die, you know, but you can have a drink or two and it can enhance conversation and it's a social lubricant. You feel great. But we know that right. because we have a human history of use that dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. Of this, doing that. There's no thing going, yeah. turn this fucking thing off. Yeah. I just got a notification from my phone the other day that said uh, my uh, screen time is down 77%. Congratulations. Like, yes. Congratulations. I did it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's because of that. Trying to like make my own user manual. I find that the reason I'm on it more than I would be is because three bands, three wineries, you know. Sure. All the, all the businesses that I have going on, I end up being on it a lot more than I want to be just because I'm answering questions or inspiring plans or whatever. Yeah. I just have to be responsive. But yeah, for me, it's a quest for interesting shit to stimulate my mind. It's, I mean, I'm always looking for, like, what's a new place for me to go to find things, you know? And I, and I sometimes feel boxed in. I'm only going to, like, a specific, like, six or seven different sites to try to get information. Well, I need a new site. I need a new thing. Like, how do I get that thing? Right, right. Where is it? You know, how do I get access to a new perspective that I didn't consider before? Like and not get overwhelmed by fucking pop up ads and bullshit right. and nonsense. And yeah, I do. I do. You know, we're on the we're currently on the road. This is a, a stop on the way. We're playing Texas uh, with the new version two of the Pussifer tour. And I find that when I'm when I'm in the break after sound check or before training jujitsu with whatever person I can find in that town, uh, I end up rather than going to those things that I should, like you're talking about. I'll just go back and I'll be watching in my dressing room just old episodes of stuff. So it's almost like for me, it's like I'm turning my brain off mm -hmm. with my Apple TV. I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna zone out and have a, like whatever light lunch I'm gonna have before the show. Play with my dog and just let that kind of be almost background noise with what's going on. So I feel like there's there's a, a an unconscious Zen thing happening with that eye candy uh and you know familiarity like i'm how many times can i watch teledega nights Pro <laughs> many more to be yeah, honest i'm going yeah. to watch that many more times but like that kind of thing just being there on the background as a, as a familiar comfort you know blanket mm -hmm. you know um, um to have it on so that i'm not i'm not thinking too much so in a way i'm putting that on so i'm not on this right so you're learning I'm learning to just put a movie on that, like, it's, it's going, and I'm, meanwhile, I'm cleaning out a drawer in the road case of shit that I didn't need. Like, everybody hands me T-shirts. I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, do I really want to hang on to this T-shirt? There's so many T-shirts. Yeah, there's so many shirts. <laughs> so many shirts. I intentionally didn't bring you anything today because, like, I always, like, I feel like you're probably just every fucking time somebody comes in there, they're just giving you shit. So. Yeah, but, you know, every now and then you get good shit. That's true. That's true. It's cool. Like, I have a lot of cool shit because of right, that. Right. Some of it's nonsense, but 
Right. But it's again, it's like the phone thing. Like you got to filter out what is nonsense. Yeah. What are you doing in Texas? What shows? Uh, we just played. Uh, Puss River just played uh, San Antonio and El Paso. We play uh, Houston tomorrow, and Fort Worth the day after. And I don't know where the fuck we go from there. I think it's, um, I want to say Louisiana, Baton Rouge, and um, New Orleans. Eventually, I think Halloween, we're actually playing in Nashville, which I'm kind of excited about because I love Nashville. Nashville's awesome. It's it's getting a little weird. Yeah. It's getting a little Hollywood. But still. Yeah, but everybody, every place is going to get that way. It's of just, course. You know, especially as soon as it becomes popular. Again, right back to this and right back to a podcast like this, I say, oh, I love Nashville, and that now people are going to, you know, there's going to be, even if it's five people that decide to go to Nashville because of hearing you say you like Nashville or me saying I like Nashville, you know, when when did somebody say something about Austin that made you move to Austin? Because, like, you know, somebody said something and inspired you to move to Austin, which when I used to be here, it was a much different town when I hung out here in 1985 mm-hmm. at what's now uh, Elysium is the is the club now on on Red River. It used to be it might it might still be it was like a gay bar, and on uh, one night a week, it would have a thing called Club Iguana, and it was like a kind of a goth punk rock night in that location, and that area was. You know, it was like the sketchy 7th Street was all the, you know, kind of cool alternative gay bar, punk rock thing. And the 6th Street was all the frat boy things. I think it's still kind of that. 6th Street's pretty weird now. It's got a lot of is, cool shit. Is it? Yeah. Because, you know, because like all the pop clubs. And... Yeah. Well, Elysium now is like, I think I could be completely wrong, but it's it's more like it's now it's goth most of the time. But, oh, really? I, but I don't know that. I haven't been in in years. Well, I started coming here in 99. Yeah. And I just, I always liked the fact that it seemed different than any other city. Yeah. It's got its own, is this it here? This is Austin in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <clears throat> they look like they're dancing a wham. Wake me yeah. and up. Where, and where is this? I, I typed just, in that just, club you said, and this is a video that popped up. So Club Iguana? Yeah. I don't know that it's it specifically, but it's someone interviewing people on the street down there. Okay. Well, that come here, we all know how, each other. How fucking amazing would it be if you see me in this video? Because I would. <laughs> I was hoping. Yeah. Great. I would. You know. Kids. By day, I had my you know my army cap on and my full, my full BDUs. You know, and then it, you know as soon as we hit the weekend hit, and we had the time off. Hat comes off. Two tone hair. Mohawk. Wear some like adamant looking. You know, Sergeant Pepper looking jacket. And then like. Wearing, you know, like stretchy a blouse for pants with a belt. So like it's it's actually a shirt. You're wearing it like almost like tights. Like, you know, we were we had a fun time. It was a good time. Just absurd. If you saw photos of me, you'd be like, I'm posting this shit on the Internet, dude. <laughs> fucking don't you fucking dare post that on, on the Internet. Uh, but that was a good time. It was fun because it was something I wasn't used to. And like Michigan, we didn't have a club like that. And, right. And it was like such a mixed, diverse, you know, a group of people. Um, I just love that area. And so I've always had a thing since then. I've always had a thing for Austin, but I've watched Austin change over the years, but it seems like it has this great, I don't know if the words libertarian or, you know, center, whatever, but you've got, you've got a mix of everybody here and they've managed to get along and not kill each other. 
Well, it's a good combination of a blue city and a red state, which is kind of my favorite. Right. It's like open-mindedness and progressive, but yet surrounded by people with guns who farm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and that's kind of and, and that's kind of what we have kind of up in like in Jerome uh Sedona area. It's it's very much that mix. Yeah. Um but you know, it's it's a I don't know, I've just I've just, I've always had a thing for Austin. I just like coming here. It's it's that town. Yeah, well, that as, makes as, sense to me. Yeah, as did I. That's why I moved here. Los Angeles, I don't, I don't resonate resonate with Los Angeles. I don't resonate with far kind of more right cities either. You know, there's, yeah. there's, you know, is there a right city? I don't know. It just seems like there's. They don't even exist, do they? Well, that's the thing about you get a group of people together. They almost always become a Democrat city. That's that could be. Yeah, it's weird. See. It's fascinating that you just get enough numbers and they go blue almost always. All right. That's the big fear about Texas is that you get enough people come here, it's going to go blue. They're all worried that they're yeah. going to lose that fucking weird edge of freedom that makes Texas unique and independent. Yeah, Texas. Texas, you don't, I don't think you have anything to worry about, Texas. Texas is an amazing state and it's just going to... It's going to maintain its identity through whatever. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I, I hope. It's just, you know, when you see like that video from like 1985, what's interesting about that, that that, that was pre-internet, right? So the, mm -hmm. the identity of that was kind of organic. Mm -hmm. like people just sort of, yeah. you know, they just decided to all like meet. That was ground point. zero for ecstasy. That was like, that was. Well, that Dallas was, was, right? Yeah, but like it was when I was in. In, uh, at that club, it had come here in its purest form, mm. and I was still in the military. And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna chance that." So Getting I, caught with it? Yeah, or I don't know. Like they said, you couldn't. It wasn't technically illegal. It just wasn't legal. You know, it was that weird thing. But like, when there's just always that clause in the military of like, da -da 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 -da, but up to our discretion. Oh. So like, eh, you know, and I'm not gonna. I'm not going to chance it because maybe they would detect it somehow and, you know, I'd be fucked and sent to fucking the brig. Or There's whatever. a podcast called Psychedelic Salon. There's a guy named Lorenzo who uh, runs it, who has uh, also been a guest on the podcast. But he was a pretty straight-laced guy and he was living in Texas. I think it was Dallas. And then did ecstasy for the first time and was like, whoa. Like, okay. Like, this is a different fucking world. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I can see why people might do this. Yeah, and then he became a, not just a hippie, but a, a guy who runs a, a podcast that plays like old Alan Watts speeches and Terrence wow. McKenna things. And right. I mean, Psychedelic Salon is probably like the best resource of like just psychedelic conversations and people talk. And it's run by this guy who's, God, I think he was a lawyer, wasn't he? Do you remember? I forget what his, but he was like super straight laced guy who someone turned him on to it. You know, it's like Jack Herrer, the guy who wrote The Emperor Has No Clothes. Like that, that guy was a, like a Goldwater Republican and got divorced, met some new gal. They smoked pot together. And then all of a sudden he became this like hemp activist and, you know, became this like super open minded hippie who's writing books on mushrooms and marijuana. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, those because those things are you know they alter your perspective and they open up neural pathways that you hadn't that hadn't been open to you before. Now, I, I wonder 
if you're a kid who grew up in that thing as a young kid and you tried it, if it if it wouldn't have the same effect because you're not that consciousness shift, that near death kind of thing in your body or whatever that shifts your perspective to opens up uh, new possibilities. If that was always kind of present in you, are you a person who would build something interesting or go down some interesting path or would it take you trudging along in the world that you live in and all of a sudden having that that moment, that op consciousness opening thing that you've already established what you think the world is and then it changes your perspective. Yeah, I found some, I've met some people that started out that way. They started out like very uh, liberal, open-minded, progressive, drugs and free thinking and then they got annoyed with all the negative aspects of it and they eventually became conservative, yeah. which is you know, they eventually realize like, hey, like hard work and dedication and discipline are that they're very important components of a successful existence. And Interesting how that flips, right? Yeah. 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 I could see that. I could see that. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just what's one of the beautiful things about America is that there are so many different ways to live. And you can find these little patches of humans that sort of have just gotten to this different mindset together. You know? Yeah, it's not easy to arrive at. No, it's like there's so many. I mean, there's different ways to live your life, and there's different cities that you can go to, and they'll they'll help you with that. They'll 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 feed that vibe or destroy it, or turn right. you into them, or you know, turn you jaded, like the New York City vibe. Yeah, no, I'm just like you know, I grew up in a small town, so I kind of I, that's kind of where I resonate more. I feed off of. A larger city vibe when I'm there in it for those temporary moments um, but then I I got to retreat back to population 500 yeah um, even when I lived in LA I didn't live in LA I lived outside of it in Ventura County and was, right. you know dealing with coyotes and shit there's like that, that to me made more sense just I need some peace I, yeah. I mean, I have friends that love to be on top of it. They love living in Manhattan on the 34th floor. And, you nah, know, I couldn't beep, do that. Beep, beep, honk, honk. I always, always kind of lived right in that kind of uh, near between um, Cahuenga and Wilton in the Hollywood Hill area mm -hmm. where, where you get, like, coyotes the size of fucking Buicks in yeah. that area. <laughs> the Hollywood yeah. Hills are always – it's always been weird because it is kind of urban, but it's kind of not. Like, it's really right. quick to get into – like you get to Chateau Marmont in like five minutes, but yeah, and you're, you're, or you know, like or you know needles and bum shit, like that's that's yeah. right there, and Chateau Marmont's right there, and then like the Gucci's right there, mm -hmm. and then there's like a coyote and you know fighting over a fucking raven and fighting over a rabbit. Well, especially now, like have you been now and seen the like the the human wildlife is out of control now? <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. It's, I don't I don't know what to yeah you know, I have no can't really speak on it because I have no solution. I don't like speaking about things that I don't think I have maybe like a suggestion of a solution. I just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a mess. I can, I can acknowledge it's a mess and I have no, I have no idea how to get out of it. Does it shock you when you see how much different things are like three years, like post COVID? Yeah, it does. I just assume, and I guess my retreat is to try to grow more food to teach my friends how to grow food 
and to understand how to, you know, distillation, uh, roasting coffees, like growing things, making, producing things in house. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my default of understanding, like, whatever's going to happen, unless it's a meteor or something crazy that interrupts, you know, uh, what we what we've recognized to be as weather patterns and growing seasons and those kind of things whatever's happening politically financially in the world if we can just remember how to secure fresh water and grow things and survive whatever this is i don't have any answers other than that that's you know that's my default is to to grow things and to not hoard to actually be active in conscious aware in the space to figure out how to survive this thing and it's yeah it might be the only thing you can do because it doesn't seem to me that anybody has real answers no. they have opinions and they express those opinions as some more confident than others but it doesn't seem like there's any real clear path as to how things i think it's just a time thing i think you know it's like um like the Hindus came up with the the concept of the yugas, the different ages of civilization. Mm -hmm. I think that was very astute. I think they were they were accurate. I think there's something to that that things have to go in sort of a natural cycle yeah. of success and decay. It'll come to a head, and it'll and we'll figure out a way through it. Yeah, you just gotta take care of yourself while it's all getting weird. Yeah, and also help people, other people take care of themselves too. So because right, know, that's. That's where the the old the, um, the Walking Dead shit goes sideways when people are like just not taking care of each other. Right. Yeah. That's what's interesting about that show, or interesting about any concept of uh, the apocalypse end times. It's the real concern is other humans, is how humans react to this deterioration of civility. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to think, because I'm an idiot and romantic, I'd like to think that we would. Most of us would choose the right way to do a thing. But when faced with impossible situations, I think that we're probably going to go back to our I think primitive. many of us will choose the right way. But the problem is there's been so many people that developed in sort of a, a sh an environment where you didn't really have to, to have earned character. You know, where you don't really develop the concepts of discipline and of, you know, of postponing pleasure and, and you know, it's like to, to farm off all the important things that need to be done to work, to, to have society function correctly on other people, but yet expect it to work. And then it goes away and you never really developed the discipline or the skill or the understanding of what's required. Yeah, under, uh, just understanding, you know, and I don't, this is of, I don't know if I'm just kind of making this up, but it seems like that, that 40 hour work week, I know that's kind of a standard, like, you know, that's your weird corporate, that's the way we've grown up. But if you can do a thing and focus on doing a thing, where you're, you know, you're working your 30 to 60 hour week of something that you're doing, that I feel like as long as it's feeding you in some way, that's, I'm, that's what I do. I, 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 I don't have like, I don't work like, I don't know, 
10 hours and then coast for the rest of the fucking week. I, that's, I, I'm working. That moment where you're starting your workout and your, your heart rate's going up and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this today. Well, you got to just get past, you got to get past that first five minutes of getting it mm-hmm. to the next, to the next thing. Yeah. And then you can do that thing for fucking 70 hours a week. Right. You know, it's like, it's, you can get past that, whatever that little initial. The resistance. The resistance. Yeah. That's the thing that people don't learn how to do. And, you know, now people are struggling with remote work because they don't want to go back to an office where they're forced to actually get past the resistance. You can kind of like right. fuck off and you use an app that pretends your cursor's moving around and <laughs> right. you get caught jerking off on Zoom. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> when? But you know what I'm saying? Like It's like you are a guy who wants to be stimulated often with your endeavors and some people never learn that. And that's sad to me. That's unfortunate because I think we all could be that and we all could find satisfaction and and just a real sense of purpose and a real sense of, uh, I want to say accomplishment, but that's not really the word. It's like a engagement, you know, that where life becomes rewarding and, and, and stimulating and it's like you have these robust moments, these like exciting things that are happening in, in these endeavors, these things that you're choosing to do that are complicated and difficult to do. And if, if you can get past that initial resistance, but some people did just never develop that. And that's, that's what's unfortunate to me about people that just work, they just have a job and the, do, the job doesn't engage them and they just want to get out of there. It's like there's other ways to live life. And if you could find a life that is engaging and if you could find things that do stimulate you and find things that you do get real satisfaction out of the complexity of them and the learning and the, the growing and the, the, you know, the, the constant stimulation of those things. It's like, I think part of it, and this is just my upbringing, I don't know that this was everybody's, but there was my dad was very and my stepmother were very inspirational for me to be able to always assume that maybe you don't know what you think you know mm. and also work you know work toward a thing um, so that you can develop just that focus and those skills and, and understanding connecting A to B to C. Like we're gonna weed this thing, we're gonna till this ground, we're gonna do this thing and it at the end of the day, you're not going to know what the, what you just did. We're not going to know until like next week or four weeks from now or six weeks from now. Now we're weeding that spot to make sure that this thing survives. And then you're harvesting that thing and we're going to have that thing for dinner. When you start connecting that all the way back to the cause and effect, uh, that was a very important lesson and how some of the things I did wrong so we don't get to have this part. Mm. So understanding everything you had to do for your day to enjoy the thing you're doing, but also understand that you're doing it for a bigger purpose. You have a connection with it. Um, I don't know. I just I was, that was instilled in me early, and I think you're right. Like people that don't really understand, if you're doing this thing just because you're trying to survive, and you don't really, you're not connecting the beginning to the end. 
yeah, I guess you are miserable. You're going to pick up the app that's going to move the cursor around because you're not really helping anyone. But I don't know. They don't have examples of those people around no, them, yeah, which is no, part of yeah. the problem of all of us is that we, re you know, like you were talking about how all art is kind of inspired by other art. Well, there's kind of an art to living life. And sometimes we don't have local examples of someone who's doing it in a way that you find engaging and stimulating. And so you don't know what to do. And if you're surrounded by people that are just using that app to move the cursor around, you think that this is just the way to do it. And then you seek thrills in drugs or in entertainment or in something that just numbs you. Mm -hmm. The dopamine addiction. Yeah. Dopamine, alcohol, jerking off, gambling, anything. Something that just like removes you from the... <laughs> Sounds like a Saturday morning to me, sir. <laughs> Uh, a Sunday morning and a Monday morning and a, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't gamble at all. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah, I, th I feel like there's the, it's it's a it's a treading water uh, disconnect um, from the bigger picture of things. Um, yeah, that's a whole other six-hour conversation, right? Just not. You know, are you just are you just a are you just a clock? You're like you're, you're just like a an hourglass. Yeah. You're just marking time till it's you're done. I don't that's know. That's a lot like, of people. It doesn't make that that's that's sad to me to try to like. Well, it's sad to them too. That's why so many people are depressed. Yeah. It's one of the reasons. Well, you know, we've talked about before, like the the action reaction, the immediate, like the immediacy of everything. I want this thing, and and I'm bitching because um, Amazon didn't deliver it to me before I ordered it. They should mm -hmm. already know what I want. And it should come yesterday. Um, it's, the life is just not like that. And when that goes away and you're, like, trying to figure out how to, like, find fresh water, fuck, good luck to you. Well, there, there are so many people that develop things that do give you that immediate satisfaction. And some people get addicted. Like TikTok. Mm -hmm. You're just constantly getting in, just stimulated mm -hmm. versus being a farmer. Like, I've always been fascinated with farmers. Because when you talk to that's them, that's the long game, dude. Oh my God, that's the long game. The long amount game. of work involved. You talk to a real farmer, a real get up at five in the morning farmer, work till dark, and be exhausted, and then do it all over again, and not get rich. And you know all the challenges come along with it. Because mm -hmm. now I'm I'm getting I'm, my phone's blowing up uh, last couple of days because we're spotting a bobcat in the neighborhood. Well, that means now I've got to bring. I'm not even there, and I've got to make sure that I'm checking with Jen to make sure she's bringing the ducks home early mm. and paying attention <laughs> in the morning. Don't let them out too soon because we want to make sure there's people around. And I'm literally doing things like uh, peeing into a, a fucking water bottle and spreading it around the perimeter of the fence because some of those predator cats, they don't like, they think that that, that, that territory's been marked. Mm. Right? Does so, that work? Well... <laughs> I hope so, because I'm the idiot out there mowing bottles of piss along the fence line. Uh, my buddy Andrew's like, yeah, you piss along the fence line. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to go out in my yard and pee on the fence with all my neighbors staring at me. I'm going to have to, like, do the weirder thing, which is pee in a bottle and then pour. I, I, if it works, then great, because I've got, I've got you know, two dozen ducks that I, gotta, I have to protect them. So. so what do you do? Do you hire someone to, like, watch the ducks or well, kill you the know, bobcat? 
Well, you can't really kill the bobcat. It's protected. So you just, you just have to pay attention to when the ducks are by themselves and do things like pee on your fence line and like hope that they just pick. Are you allowed to chase the to bobcat off? I think what, so. What are the laws in terms I, of like... I think you have to call like the, you know, the local um, fish and game to see if they can relocate it, mm. maybe. But once that, if that bobcat finds out I have ducks, there's not much I'm going to be able to do. It will come back until it gets all of the ducks. Yeah, we had that in California with chickens and coyotes. They got all my fucking chickens. Just a matter of time. So just mark mark your calendar because eventually, like, in about, you know, a year, you're going to, like, the video will surface where I'm out there half-naked peeing on a fence chasing off a bobcat, with, you know, with a fucking paintball gun. Yeah. A lot of people just hire someone to deal with that. That's, but that's not us. Where that's this is what we do. This is yeah. this is part of our world. We, we we raise ducks. We raise quail. My wife's a. Uh, I don't know if I told you this. She's a she's a falconer, licensed falconer now. So she's we have a we have a hawk, named Loki, and so Whoa. she has so she has a full on full on hawk. So when you say licensed falconer, do you use that falcon to go do stuff? Eventually, Does that falcon eventually go we'll use the quail for you. Well, yeah, it'll it loves the quail, but uh, you know we can take it around the vineyards eventually, and it'll chase off ground squirrels and, and wow. rabbits out of the out of the vineyard. I was at a Tahone Ranch recently, which is in uh, Central California, and it's uh, there's more ground squirrels than you could possibly imagine. They were telling me that the body mass. The, the biomass of ground squirrels is greater than the biomass of cows they have. So they have beef cows everywhere. There's enormous cows everywhere, but there's more body weight in ground squirrels than there are cows. That's nuts. There's so many of them. There's little holes everywhere I have you a go. solution. It's called, his name's Loki. Loki <laughs> would have to go to work. I watched an eagle uh, catch something. I don't know what it caught, but a golden eagle. I watched it snatch something and then drag it up into uh, the f- like the the cover. I couldn't see, mm-hmm. but I watched it come down, snatch this thing, and then it was it's, moving with this thing on the ground. It's incredible how they how they they can see that mm-hmm. from so far away and like, boom! And those little fuckers are trying to get away from that eagle too. It's mm-hmm. this beautiful dance, but to be there. Right when it caught it was wild. I tried to get close enough to take a photo of it, but I couldn't. But it's, uh, you know, that's the balance. Like, you have to have that. Yep. And when you fuck that balance up with, like, a giant pack of ducks that are all in this one, it's like, this is so much food in this one spot. Yeah. Why am I going anywhere else? Right. Fuck ground squirrels. These things don't even fly. Yeah. And they'll come after your ducks. What do you use the ducks for? Eggs or you eat them? No, the eggs. Uh, I make the, well, Chris... Uh, at the Osteria mix, uh, uses the yolks for our pasta, and then eventually when I open up the the, the brunch place, we'll use the whites to do um, a quiche. Duck eggs have a weird way of like coating the surface of your mouth, like yeah. the roof of your mouth. Like, yeah, it's a it's a weird egg. Yeah, that's why I like and when you put them in the pasta, it actually works better. Like just rather than just having the scrambled duck egg. I don't prefer the scrambled duck egg. I like using the yolk for the pasta and the. We'll use a couple yolks, but mainly like an egg white with some yolks, uh, quiche base. We were talking about this before, I know, but do, are you getting your your wheat from other sources? Like, you getting it from outside the United States? Yeah, the best. The best. Um, generally speaking, the best uh, wheats, the flour, are it's a it's an Italian milled 
flour, uh, but a significant portion of that flour is actually hard wheat, uh, winter wheat from Arizona. That's so you mix them like a blend? Well, they do. They get, they'll get the, you know, all the wheat that just gets grown around, you know, the Midwest and, and Arizona ends up going to a central, it's a commodity. So it goes to a central area, then it gets shipped to a place like Italy and they mill it and blend it and sell it back to you. Mm. And what's the benefit of adding the Arizona wheat? There's, it's a, it just that, that, uh, that, uh, just the way that it works with pasta, you know, the, the gluten structure of, of the pasta, that, that hard winter wheat from Arizona is a good ingredient to make it. Just the, for texture? The, texture. Holding, holding the pasta together, keeping it uh, form, you know, the form. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's pretty cool to know that, like, there's a significant amount of Arizona fl- uh, wheat in our flour that we use. Even though it's not milled in the state, it's it's a it's a part of the blend. And is this a, an heirloom wheat? Is this a modified? We used wheat? we were using quite a bit of heirloom uh, flour from Arizona, but the the combination of the blend, whatever the Italians do to blend that thing together, it just ends up being better. So hmm. we're trying as much as we can to use Arizona wheat, blend it in. We blend more in than when it comes in, just so because we're trying to support. The, the flour from Arizona, but at the end of the day, you know, it's got to, it's got to have structure. It's got to, it's got to be tasty. So we got to do what we got to do to make it, the end product be presentable and awesome. How much do you pay attention to glyphosate and you know the the real debate now about what how much glyphosate is getting into our food supply? I don't know what the fuck you're talking. About. You don't know what Roundup is? Oh yeah, Roundup. Yeah 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 yeah. yeah. I we don't we don't use it um, in the vineyard. We used to, because yeah. we, we thought you're, that's what you're supposed to do, right? And then our southern Arizona, the 80-acre vineyard down there, we have awesome ground cover down there. And so we just mow the ground cover down or mulch it down. So we don't, we're not using any of the, of, the, of the pre-emergent or the weeding shit anymore. It's a big debate now because uh, there was a recent study that I think it was like 80% of people they tested had glyphosate in their bodies. I would imagine it's all of us. Yeah. yeah. That, that makes sense. Because we used it, we used it on everything forever. Yeah, it's a it's a creepy herbicide. It's yeah. weird, and and also, I, I think they've genetically modified certain foods to have glyphosate in them. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, it's like so we're doing our best to not, you know, we use as much as we can, just you know, manual weeding, or we use the ground cover in the vineyard to eliminate that part of the process. Do you pay attention to people like Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms or any of these people that have like regenerative agricultural practices where mm-hmm. they it's it's an interesting because I don't know if it's scalable. Like the big question is like that's that ends up being the issue. Too many mm-hmm. people. Right. You know, too many good. people not growing food, which is the big problem. Yeah, too many cities. yeah, too many yeah, too many people not growing food, um too many people in general or just the scale of doing that thing with the current, the way we do farming, like, you know, the debate of, you know, migrant workers coming in and working on things. Um, it's a, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to do. So that's why you end up defaulting to things like Roundup and those things, because they're trying to make the margin and cut the corner to get the thing done. And it's a, a, a economy of scale, I guess. Um, so we're trying as much as best we can to do that 
in-house. We grow our own food for the, the Trattoria Osteria and the place in Scottsdale. We do as much as we can to grow food for those locations. So the stuff that's on the pizza, the stuff that's stuffed in the, the raviolis, the salad you get on the labadur uh, plate, um, a significant amount of that is what we grow. We start to supplement. So when we supplement, we supplement from local growers in Arizona that are, you know, organic growers that are not using the, the Roundup. But again, that's, you're dealing with a, a couple three, medium-sized three restaurants. Three restaurants, yeah. yeah. We're, not, we're, not, we're not talking about a chain of olive gardens across the country. Right. They or couldn't. Just a city. Yeah. You know, a city yeah. of, you know, 15 million people that aren't yeah. growing food. Right. Just the sheer bulk of the amount of stuff that's consumed. Right. That's a, the weirdest thing about cities is that we, we've figured out this way to make these centers where you have extraordinary populations with, you know, cement structures and, you know, water piped in underground, but there's no food. Everything has to be trucked in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure there's somebody smarter than me could figure that out. Uh, but <laughs> it's all about margins, isn't it? Do you ever play it out? Like, where does this go? Like, if the population keeps increasing, cities keep growing, you're you're in the food-growing business. Well, I, you know, I, I used to work in a pet store, so um, eventually the rats eat themselves. You can't, put, you can't put a bunch of rats or hamsters. Hamsters are worse than rats. Hamsters, you can't put a bunch of hamsters in a, in a, in a terrarium or aquarium for, you know, people to come and buy because you put too many in there, you'll come back and half of them are dead. They eat themselves? They'll fucking kill each other. Really? Yeah. Just so from overpopulation, they will they will turn on each other and they will they will eat each other. Yes. That's I've read a study once. We were talking about rat population density studies. Um, that their behavior mirrors the behavior of high population cities. That you have a certain amount of mental illness that occurs, a certain amount of violence I that occurs. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's just a function just like, of. And then you know we would get in the shipment of the new uh, hamsters this week, and I would have to take this aquarium, move it away put a new aquarium there, put fresh shavings and stuff in it, and then move those hamsters and those and put them in together that way. If I put the new hamsters in with the old hamsters in their environment that they've been pissing in for a couple of days, they fight. You have to basically introduce them to a new environment so that's new to all of them and it's new smells, and then they won't fight as much. So we need to start new countries, you're saying? Correct. That's the move. Hey. Where do we go? Maybe with global warming, Greenland will be available. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or we could just take all the garbage and pile and compact it into bricks and make an island. Ah. Garbage island. That's not a bad idea. I Something has to happen. I, I patented it just now. Copyright, mm. copyright. Yeah, I wonder. You know, I wonder what, when you look at you know, the human race is approaching 8 billion people. Like at, at what point in time do we all exhibit like is, is that the future of the human race it's like the worst aspects of urban living just no, i think universally it, there's you know that's i think it's going to sort itself out i think it's going to end up coming to a head in some way and i don't know civil war meteor uh, virus something will alien kinda, invasion alien invasion turn us into fuel mm. or the other concept is that when people live in these urban areas, they they actually have less kids, and that slowly population growth sort of declines naturally because people become obsessed with their careers and 
you know, that doesn't seem to be happening. It is happening in some places, apparently. Okay. It's like Japan has an issue with that right now. And some different cities do have... Uh, they don't have the sustainable population for their future of what they're doing? Yeah, that's the, the, the thought is that people are having so few children that ultimately at one point in time you're going to see a population decline and that th there's going to be a sort of an implosion. Like Elon's actually talked about that, the importance of having children. You know, like so many people aren't having children that live in these urban areas that you're going to see a collapse. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a mathematician out there that can say, okay, for every person, how many kids should I have? One, two, right? You know, so if if between my wife and I there's two kids, is that enough? That seems like or enough. One, but if you only have one, then naturally you're going to okay. have a decline. Two okay. people have one kid, you got a decline. Right. And that's a lot of what's going on, and maybe some people are not having kids at all right. because they're dedicated to their careers. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Voucher system. Voucher? Oh, well, then you got the government involved <laughs> telling people what to do and not to do. And that's never good. Uh, sometimes it's okay. You live in a, like, how many people live in Jerome? 500. Jesus. That might be the way to go. You like it, huh? Mm -hmm. But the, the 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 contrast between that and touring has got to be pretty cool. But if you just live there with no touring, you might get a little bored. Well, but you know, you got Flagstaff to the north, you got Sedona, you've got Phoenix to the south. Scottsdale. Right, you can visit other spots. Yeah, that's not it's not that far away. Prescott's a little hopping little town. It's pretty great. Prescott's a hopping little town. Yeah, really? I mean, it's you know, it's it's kind of cowboy, uh, but it's it's you know, got some fun activities. There's one. Area, I don't think maybe it's Prescott. That's like one of the best places to observe the night sky. Well, a lot of places are like that. Jerome's amazing for that because there's there's definitely a light discipline as far as like uh, ordinances about having too many lights on. At Is night. there? Yeah, so you can actually see. It's like this. It's crazy. And it's just for that purpose. I think yeah. partially, but you can like, only do that in smaller areas. Yeah, it's amazing. Like it, it's the the stars in in Arizona are incredible because there's uh, there's less uh, humidity in the air so that just that less humidity in the air doesn't like kind of disperse the light mm -hmm. so it's focused you can see all the stars and you can see the Milky Way oh uh, yeah you can well, tell you can tell when that that's Venus you can tell that that's Venus you know mm. that's a planet that's a star well, that's the beautiful thing about living in a place where it doesn't have light pollution is it's a, there's a humbling aspect to staring out at the cosmos that really lets you know, like, hey, we're a part of this enormous, impossibly big thing. Yeah. And it's not just about your career. It's not just about, you know, your credit card debt and, you know, how much yeah, you owe the, in your car. The noise of the big city can kind of drown a lot of that out. You don't really... The feel. noise and the light. The, yeah. the, I mean, it's not a... It, the, 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 that environment where you have extreme light pollution and no access to the stars is it's it's very unnatural and very unusual in terms of a human history it's never happened before up until the last couple hundred years with the invention of electricity and the industrial revolution yeah i didn't really they, think of that yeah they didn't have that so people had sort of a, a there was a humbling aspect to the night that allowed people to just like get a perspective and also just the beauty and the majesty of the sky and the looking at the cosmos and looking at the Milky Way, it 
put things into focus in a way that I don't think people in cities have access to now. No. Come visit the desert. Did you ever see anything up there in the sky? Look at that. Where's that? Um, Prescott. That's, that's Prescott. Yeah. So is it Prescott? Is the, that the uh, place? I don't know. I was trying to find that specifically. Prescott. Say it right. I'm sorry. Prescott. Prescott. Like Biscuit. Prescott. Prescott. Yeah, Prescott, you, Arizona. You'll get yelled at by the locals. Well, fuck them. That's what you want to yell at me about? That's beautiful, though. God yeah, it's, it's in, yeah, it's insane. And that's that's pretty much what I see at night. Is It looks that good. Yeah, that, well, sometimes like that, one of those, go down to that one there, you can see the the Milky Way more. Yeah. So that you know that that's you know when you're at night on my porch, that's I can see that. You ever seen that's a little intense because they've definitely like it's done more of a time lapse, so it's kind of mm-hmm. like really sunk in. But like on on your average night in Arizona, I can see I can see all those things. Wow, that's fucking amazing. Yeah. Do you ever see some weird shit flying around? Uh, well, I, I didn't. Um, I was abducted. And um, what'd you I, learn? I learned that um, I don't like butt stuff, <laughs> um, allegedly. Um, no, I don't know that. I don't really see anything there. Uh, I haven't seen anything weirder, you know, out, you know, kind of extraterrestrial in nature that I that I know of. Yeah, I might be looking right at a thing, and I didn't know that it was a thing, but uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm so enamored with that sky that uh, that to me is like. That's extraterrestrial enough for me just to see that just a majesty. Were you shit. living in Arizona, Arizona, when the Phoenix Lights thing happened? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, no idea what that was. You know, one of those things where. Did you ever see any of it? No, I didn't. I didn't see. I saw videos of it, but I didn't see it. Do you um, know anybody who saw it? Mm-mm. That's a, a weird moment in urban history where, yeah. like, mass sightings in this one area. Uh, you know, I think of. I might have talked about this with you at some point like to me it's almost like it's i feel like as we go forward in time maybe there's some kind of technology that allows us to look back in time you you pay your fee at disneyland and you can Mm. go put the goggles on and it like it opens a portal in a time frame where you're just allowed to look you can just look you can't touch but then if you're if you're paying attention you see the (laughs) the dude looking Right, you see the portal so, occasionally. The, yeah, the portal occasionally, and, and, it's, and it's just uh, it's just a remote viewing from a future time when they can actually like peek. They can't they can't meddle, they can't touch, they can just look, and it's just a, it's an anomaly in your in your in our simulation. I was reading this thing about quantum computing today, and you could probably relate to this because you've done some music with the Fibonacci sequence, and where they entered the Fibonacci sequence into quantum computing and they found it's something has to do it had something to do with different ways that time expresses itself so you could find this because I'm gonna butcher this but I was reading it and I remember here it is scientists fed the Fibonacci sequence into a quantum computer and something strange happened you can have the system behave as if there are two distinct directions of time I think it's just a matter of time before they figure something like that out mm-hmm. But should we? We're going to. <laughs> Aren't We're there movies that start this way? <laughs> <laughs> there are, but, it, but there are movies that start that way because we understand how the human mind works. This yeah. constant lust for technological innovation is never going to be quenched. Right. And I think 
if we continue to stay alive, we're going to come up with something that's going to change everything about the way we interact with reality. And it's probably going to happen within our lifetime. It seems like the exponential. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It probably depends on who's in, at, at the wheel. It's a thing. Yeah. Good or bad is, you know, relative. But I think uh, it's going to we, – we live in an amazing time because both things exist. You have wine and you have farmers and people cultivating food and creating art. And you also have – these disruptive technologies that are being implemented in a way that we really have no idea what the consequences are. Yeah. And it's all happening simultaneously. Yeah. And it makes the hikes in the mountains more attractive. It makes the staring at the sky in Prescott more interesting that you, you do live in these simultaneous sort of timelines. Yeah. That's a good thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you're not going to stop it. You know, I was having this conversation with my kids one night at dinner recently. We were saying, like, if we just stopped making new stuff right now, life's pretty good. If we said all the phones that we have right now, well, no more. iPhone 14 is the, the, the end of the line. Mm-hmm. Just keep, keep making them and keep fixing them, and that's it. We don't need anything new. But we'll never do that. And then no. we're all just talking about it like, yeah, you're well, right. That's why we're like we're in a constant state of invading some other area that has some natural resources mm-hmm. because we gotta keep we gotta get to the sixteen, right? Yeah. Gotta get to the the Tesla that goes zero to sixty in, instantaneously. That, you know, operates on some fucking gravity drive that allows you to punch a hole through space and time and pop in up in Australia in a half a second. <coughs> it's coming. Just need a Subaru Brat, man. You'll get there. <laughs> well, I'd imagine where you live, robust vehicles are probably very valuable. Yeah, I have a, I have a, an old uh, 73 FJ. Oh, yeah. Those are the best. Yeah. FJ40? Yep. Um, yeah, and it's, I, of course, we redid it. It's like a V8 engine in it. And, Do you use like an LS swap? Is that what they did? Like an LS V8, like a Chevy? Probably. Like a GM V8? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty amazing thing. Those are beautiful cars, man. Those yeah. FJ40s, like Icon out of uh, California makes those where they, they do the, the V8 swap. And it's just, when you're in one of them, it's just, they're so satisfying. Some, it's so mechanical. and Yeah. Everything about it is like it speaks to you. And it's so robust and... Yeah, mine mine has little ammo boxes. Look at that. Yeah, is that what you have? One of those? Yeah, yeah. So that's how you get around. Yeah, that that keeps you grounded. Yeah, I mean, you know, is it a manual? No, it's automatic. I'm oh, a pussy. How dare you? Yeah, I know. But, Why didn't you, know. you get a manual? Uh, because um, you hate I, life. I, I, you know, I'm lazy. Yeah, know. see that one right there, three fifty powered. There's my Look the. That. The other one, the the tan one. That's, that's you? Yeah, that's kind of one I have. Those are gorgeous. There's something about those. It's like That's like one of the coolest shapes that people have ever figured out for mm-hmm. sort of an industrial vehicle or a farming vehicle. That's perfect for a farm. Yeah. Do you know how to fix it or do you hire someone to do no, it? No, I got guys that fix it. But, like, yeah. you know, as far as, you know, I still have the old Subaru Brat, and so— I you weren't done, kidding. You really do have a super yeah, regret. I, I, my, my wife stole it for the 24, uh, 24 hours of lemons races. But, uh, <laughs> what the fuck is that? It's, uh, it's, it's, 
that's 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 your homework. Fuck Le Mans. Is yeah. that it? Fuck yeah, man. That's hilarious. Is the El Camino of Japanese cars? Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, um, that was one of my first cars, so I knew how to change out the alternator, uh, fix the clutch cable. Like I can fix, I can fix that one for, to a point. I would have to have a friend come in and help me if I had to rebuild an engine on it. Yeah, I would have to like go to another friend, but I can fix that. The new cars and stuff, like, no, yeah, I'm, I'm lost. No, no one can. Yeah. That, I mean, you have to really have a fucking education in computers. Like, it's the weirdest thing about cars today is like they're having a hard time finding chips for them. Right. It's like it's hard to buy a new car. Some of some of the new cars, there's like a back order because they don't have chips. Right. Because everything relies on some sort of a centralized computer. You know what doesn't have a chip? Super Brat. No. Does that '73 <laughs> Toyota with the V8? Does that have a chip? Uh, well, I'm, no, I think the I think the engine is just old enough to where maybe it doesn't. But oh, I don't okay, know. I would have to ask my guys. Because a lot of the new ones, they actually do have a. Unfortunately, they do have a computer that powers it. Probably is, yeah. Yeah, because if you LS is. swap, they they have like an ECU that sort of runs. Most everything. likely, it is that. Mm. So. Still, like those o- older Japanese cars are the very best cars when it comes to like robustness, like. Those yeah. Toyota FJs, the FJ60s, the 62s. Yeah, my dad, back in the day, like 1973, the the original little, it's not even the Tacoma, it's just the Toyota truck. Mm-hmm. That thing back in 1973, he had it for decades. The thing had like one million miles on it or yeah. something insane. So. Yeah, they're very valuable today because of that reason. Because people realize, like, this is kind of fucking unique that these things are that that robust they yeah. can last for so long i think long. by the time he actually he had sold it to a guy sold it to a guy and they actually took it to the you know the, the dump and like they picked it up and it broke in half because like the engine was still good five hundred thousand miles i think was on it and but the the frame was gone like it was you know rotted fo- out foot through the floor under yeah the fred flintstone down the road yeah but all that stuff can be repaired yeah it's just to be in a place like yours and to have those kind of vehicles. That's like, it's very. It's got to be very grounding for you. Be driving around that farm and. Yeah, you can't have a truck. I have friends that show up and go, "Hey, man, let's you know, I'm gonna go out and check out the vineyard." And I look at their car and like, "Yeah, then, <laughs> not hop, that thing." Hop in, hop in. <laughs> leave that. Leave How it. big is your vineyard? How many acres is it? I have 80 acres in southern Arizona. I have several sites up in northern Arizona. Um, a two-acre, a three-acre, a four-acre, a 30-acre, and a five-acre. And how do you pick these areas that you're going to acquire? Available water. Mm. Paying attention to water rights, ditch rights, um, groundwater rights. And you expand based on the need? Yeah. And so, like, you go, You know, just expense. I mean, there's a huge expense in terms of, of vineyards. So let's, you know, just quick math. Let's assume you own a piece of land, and depending on where that land is, it's, it's going to be a different price. Like if you buy an acre of land in the Verde Valley, it's going to be fifty to $100,000 for an acre of empty land. Now you got to put power and water on it. Um, so if you're getting a vineyard, you're not going to do an acre. You're, not, you're going to do 20 acres or whatever. So southern Arizona, maybe fifteen grand an acre, maybe ten. Uh, so depending on where you're going to do it. So let's say you own the land. You've already paid whatever that number is. Now you got to make sure that there's power and water to that. So let's say you've got it graded. 
you've got power and you've got water on it. That's a huge expense just by itself, right? Just to plant an acre of vineyards is about $30,000 an acre. So with that 10-acre site, you're already up to $300,000, you know, right? But the vines don't produce fruit for four years. Whoa. So you're not going to see your first grape. And even if you get your grape, now you got to wait. You know, you got to make it. you got to age it. you got to bottle it. you got to sell it. So from your first, assuming you own the acres and assuming you have power and water and it's been graded, uh, and you're thirty thousand dollars in for your first for that first planting that first year. You're not going to see your first dollar for at least six seven years. So when you acquired your first farm, hmm. was it an existing My, winery? No, the the land that I planted the Judas block on, I planted that vineyard, and I was sourcing fruit from other vineyards for a while. How long did you think about doing that before you actually pulled the trigger? Uh, I was kind of mulling it over from starting around 99, 2000. Wow. And then I planted my first vineyards in 2003. Did, were you like, what the fuck am I doing? Yes. <laughs> I'm still today, <laughs> in this very moment, I'm wondering what the fuck <laughs> did I do and what am I doing? Yeah. You, how many people do you have working for you now if you have that many different farms well, between, simultaneously? Between Pussifer, um, the Pussifer store, you know, all of our distribution people, our retail people, our behind-the-scenes, you know, uh, seller workers. Uh, I'm about 110 families that we employ. Wow. Around around Arizona. And so when you develop a piece of land, it's like if, say, if you want to start and expand into a new piece of land, who do you have? Who do you have? Does the person have to relocate there? Do you have to have... Someone that can commute to the spot and make sure it's running okay for the four years. Yeah, well, so, so down, you know, down in southern Arizona, Jesse lives on site with his wife, and we have you know a couple full-time people. And if you're farming it properly, you need seasonal work. You need people to come in, and like a large number of people to come in and prune, a large number of people to come in and do um, shoot thinning and blah blah blah. And then for you know, picking, of course, you've got that season. You have people around. You have to do the pick, and you have to work with a labor contractor to make sure that you have those numbers of people there to do that but annually year round those those two or three people are on site all year round i would imagine that is always in the back of your head that you have all these different moving parts going on constantly yeah how do you rest um you just you either do or you don't right you just rest you know but that's a lot of, a lot of noise, constantly. Yeah, yeah, chum, 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 yeah. yeah. Chum, 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 chum. That's why you watch television nights and fall asleep. <laughs> God, from the time that you started doing that, did you ever imagine that it would be what it is now? No, I thought it was going to be a much smaller uh, thing. Um, it's still a pretty small thing, but as far as all the moving parts and all the beautiful things we've got that we've accomplished. Um, um, no regrets. I think we're doing, there's a pretty cool thing we're doing. It is very cool. That's when I really started getting interested in you, honestly, when I found out about uh, your vineyard. I was like, huh, what a fucking weird guy. Yeah. Like he's doing that? There's, you know, there's a couple of people in my, in our genre, uh, not even really our genre, just like musicians that, there's a couple of people that are doing stuff. I think Pink is involved in her wine production in some way. 
Um, but I'm, you know, other than her and a couple people, um, not anybody you hear that has a wine label, generally speaking, is they're just putting their name on it or they have somebody doing it mm-hmm. for them. And they might be kind of involved, but they're not they're not as involved as I am. No. That's just, it's so involved. It's... Do you ever anticipate not doing music and just doing that, or do you think you're always going to be doing everything? I think I'll be doing everything. I don't really see any reason to give up either one because they can coexist. There's definitely time for both, because if, especially if you're organized like I am and create those spaces for creating music and touring, but knowing that you, it's not up to you when, the, when it's harvest season, this is harvest season. So I like that balance of like, I have to respond to what Mother Nature says on this front, but on the music side, I can kind of have a little more flexibility and and uh, and create when the spirit moves me. It has well, to be a wild challenge, though, to figure out how to scale that. Like as it was happening and grow. Like, how did you figure out how to make it all work? I don't know that I have yet. <laughs> you know, we're just we're we're we're, we're figuring it out still. Wow. It's um, it's very complex, but it 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 makes for a very unique experience, I would imagine, in life. That you well, again, have. like going back to like you started this thing, and seven years later, and then I put that wine in a bottle, and I try to forget about that bottle, to then open that bottle another ten years later, to go, oh fuck, man, that's, I did that. Yeah. And there's a time when you should open it too, right? Depends on the grape, honestly. You, you know. How do you know? To, you don't. I mean, especially in an area that we're where we're growing and the grapes that we're not quite sure about yet. There's definitely things in wine that help it be an ageable wine, uh, or that won't that won't fall apart right away. Uh, but you know, there's some there's chemical things you can kind of figure out, like what what do we think might age better. Um, but until you actually open that bottle 15 years later, you don't, you don't really know. You think you might know, but you don't know. Have you ever heard of a book called The Immortality Key? Mm-mm. There's a guy named Brian Murorescu who became uh, obsessed with the uh, Lucidian mysteries and uh, the ancient Greeks who uh, drank wine and invented democracy and invented all these different things in this like one particular area of enlightenment. And um, he started studying this and found uh, very distinct evidence that the wine, what they were calling wine back then, was wine that was mixed in with a a bunch of different things. And uh, a lot of it was like ergot, and a lot of it was psychedelic compounds. Probably, yeah. Through this, they've actually developed a field of study at Harvard through his work. And he came on the podcast and talked about it, and it sort of opened up this field of study is that the book is really fascinating because he st- he was obsessed with this for decades and studied it for a long time, and then they eventually found physical evidence in these old wine vessels. Okay. Because yeah, it would be there. Like, that's that's the cool thing about those. There's always going to be some chamber that's going to be unearthed that nobody mm-hmm. knew was there. And if it's, if it's Greece or, you know, early Roman time, whatever, there's going to be wine in that thing. 
<laughs> that's what wine there's gonna was. Be some bottles in there. Wine was wine was like fermented grapes, but it was mixed in with a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, like that was what they used to. When we think of wine, we think of what you make. Mm-hmm. But what you make is not just the grapes, right? Like not just fermented grapes. Uh, there's stuff in there. No, no, it's all it's just grapes. But, but you add. Nothing. You had some sort of uh, no, yeast, or well, any? yeah. I mean, that's what well, I'm no. I, the, the yeast already is exist, It exists on the on the grapes, and so our our fermentation process is is kickstarted by the yeast that exists on those grapes. So I do I do I just do wild ferments. I don't mm. add yeast. Some instances I do, depending on the fruit coming in, and like if I'm observing, there's going to be maybe some problems with that particular batch of uh, fruit. Yeah, maybe I'll add a do a an inoculation for that thing, but we're 95% uh, wild ferments. But I do also do um, mead, which is honey, water, yeast. So we do that fermentation uh, to do canned. I think I brought you some. Last yes, time, you did the canned mead. We had some at your osteria. It was amazing. Yeah, so that it's really wild tasting, like different yeah. than anything I think I'd ever drank before. Yeah, but that we also have, we're about to can it. But I actually did a fermentation with the mead where I did uh, one with lavender, one with hibiscus, one with bergamot, and one with star jasmine, just to see what that would lend as far as a floral nature in that, in that, in that mead. We'll see. I haven't I mean, We haven't actually canned it yet to see how that went. But You also had like a, a natural sparkling, like a white wine. Yeah, the, 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 the pet nat, we call it. It's a, an ancient method. Uh, of uh, letting the letting the wine finish fermentation in a in a bottle, so it's kind of like champagne, but, yeah, but different, but more different tasting. It was yeah, kind of more complex. Yeah, I think uh, I think some champ. You know, if you're a champagne person versus like an Italian sparkling. Uh, I'm now I'm getting all geeky with people that are uh, wine drinkers, but what we're doing in Arizona is far more like a a. Uh, a filtered uh, ancient method um, Italian sparkling because it's Malvasia Bianca and Chardonnay 50-50 so it's if people are for people listening if you're wondering what kind of sparkling I'm doing that's a that's a pet nat it's very much in a in an Italian sparkling approach rather than a champagne the reason why I brought up the Brian Murray Rescue book because I've always been fascinated like well, if that was what wine used to be that wine was the fermented grapes mixed in with psychedelics and all these other compounds mm-hmm. that they're sort of discovering. When did modern, what we think of as wine now, which is like what you make, when did that start? No idea. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it could very well be some kind of way before pre-prohibition kind of stuff in Europe. I have no idea. But, you know, I know that there's, there's people that have done like botanicals where they're kind of doing almost like beer, uh, beerish, wineish uh, botanical fermentations, various, you know, varying results, but I don't know. I've really researched it. Did you ever see the documentary Sour Grapes? Yeah. Wild shit, right? Yeah, that guy was amazing. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, one of my good friends is in that documentary. I uh, met that gentleman who got arrested. Mm-hmm. I met him at a wine tasting. Me too. Like, me too. Did me, you? Me too, yeah. I really? Was, I was with Peter Gago from uh, Penfolds. They were doing a whole Penfolds Australian wine uh, dinner at the Australian um, consulate's house or whatever, and that guy was sitting right here. What was his to name me. again? I don't remember his name. 
It was right at the tip of my, it was like an American name. Mm. Um, I met him because my friend is a wine dork and he, he had a birthday party. So I went to his, I want to say it's 2003. And uh, we all were sitting around and they would serve this incredible food with flights of wine. And uh, they'd all brought their own wine. They were popping corks and the Rudy. Rudy. Yeah, he's out now. Yeah. Yeah. His, his you know, never mind the shady shit he was up to. That's, you know, that's why you went to prison, buddy. But his palate and his ability to mimic those things was fucking otherworldly. He was really good at that thing. And his, and his perception of things in that bottle, in that class, to be able to reproduce that the way he did was... Well, that was why I brought it up. Like, did he reproduce it accurately? Like, enough, enough to fool complex palates. Mm. Just enough, because you know, there's there's bottle variation on things, so it could be like, oh, this one doesn't quite taste like the ones I've had before. Right, right, and that could be expressed in legitimate bottles. Yeah, like from two thousand what to two thousand this, and different climate, different yeah weather was different that year. Yeah, the funny part was like people that were totally duped. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, these minor, minor cool. I was, I'm not a dupe. Well, it was funny, and the the people who are self-professed uh, wine experts was like, this one's real, and then another guy would come along and go, this is garbage. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how can there be such a varying opinion among amongst people that are yeah. actually? Wine? There's there's always been that kind of like. You know, you can't taste how expensive a wine is. Well, no, of course you can't taste how expensive a wine is. It, it, but there are guys who are really good at identifying right down to the year and the producer by what they're tasting in a glass. And it's like, I think it's, it's fucking, it's voodoo. It's like, it's, it's incredible how they can do that. They can narrow it down. Um, and that's, of course, from an established region that has a history that there's, you can kind of track it uh, to a point time and having maybe had that wine and they have that fucking lockbox where they, yeah. they can they can log that shit away and it's like a you know steel trap of of recollection of those things those guys are incredible yeah i've talked to sommeliers that claim to be able to do that and i've tried to get it from them like what are you doing like how are you doing that like what what is it about a wine like you can drink it and say there's a checklist is- and that that they that they go through it's a very rigorous uh, drilling of a checklist of things that they identify, the first thing they identify, the second thing they identify, and, they, and it's not you know it's it's more, like, okay when I walk into when I pull into your parking lot is this a house or is this an industrial complex or is this a barn or is this a an airport? Well, it's an industrial complex. Okay now, uh, is there parking? Yes, there's parking. Okay, if, when we walk in, is it? You know, so you're you're going through this checklist of just super general shit, down to very specific things. Have you tried to learn that? Fuck no, man. I got way too much shit in my head <laughs> to deal with that shit. But I would imagine, like in making wine, like you do, there you have to have some sort of a palate. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, I I don't have to sound like Led Zeppelin. I just have to sound like me. So I'm only expressing right. these grapes are going to tell me what they're going to do, and I'm going to try to get out of the way to make sure that these grapes grow from grapes to wine, 
and I'm going to do everything that I know how to do to get out of the way to make sure that thing is that thing. Now, me describing that thing to you like a psalm describes it, I can't do that for you. But I can get out of the way to make it get to the thing that you can describe. That's your job. But when you decided to do this in 2000, when you had, you must have had some sort of uh, an esoteric appreciation. Yes, 100%. I just couldn't describe that to you, and I couldn't map out what year was what wine. I could just tell you that everything about this wine is inspirational in some way, uh, whether it's like it, the age on it, the acid structure, something that all the, all the pistons were firing in terms of like all the sensory um, alarms that are going off in my mouth, uh, the length of the experience, like how it's changing in the glass. Yeah, that was very inspiring to me. As far as actually being able to map that out for you, I'm an idiot. I couldn't do it. Did you go through any sort of education in terms of like what is involved in the creation of a wine that you appreciate? I just thought uh, time, time in cellar, like spending time in, in Adelaide Hills at, at, uh, at Penfolds for a very short amount of time seeing it happening around the world, uh, going to wineries while on tour, while they're harvest, trying to time it where I can go when they're going to actually harvest today to see what's the equipment are you using? What are you doing? Like, how do you, how are you doing this thing? Like, when did that spark get ignited? Like, what? 99. So it was like 99. right before you started. Mm-hmm. So before that, were you a wine connoisseur? Were you a wine I, appreciator? Did I started you just... appreciating wine maybe around 96. Really? Yeah. So just a few years later, you own a vineyard. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it just resonated. Whatever it was, it just clicked. Right? Mm. It's like, you know, going back to, I was talking to, to Donald today. He's like, he walked into Hickson's place on Pico back in the day. Um, Henry Ankins walked in the same week that I walked in to Hickson's Academy back in 95. Henry Akins is one of the best black belts I've ever met. <laughs> I can't, I can barely tie my belt. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, so it resonated with it him. It resonated with him. It made sense to him, it clicked and it went, and there's no way you can figure out what that is to make, you know, make him what he is, mm-hmm. right? I was not that guy, I had to work harder at it. Wine was like I'd been doing it my whole life. Almost instantly. It made sense. And so, then and then slowly backing up and understanding the chemistry of it, working with people to go action reaction and logging that in to develop that, you know, constantly. But the process, just the basic logistics of making wine made sense to me almost instantaneously. And this was from ninety six? Like when No, I saw my first wine that I you know, actually was involved in making was uh, two thousand four. Oh, but but in '96, when you first started getting interested in it, mm-hmm. you went to a vineyard. You it was just, just dinners, like you're, you know, you start to all of a sudden went from a dude who you know woke and grew up in a, you know, lower middle class family with teachers on, you know, teach uh, uh, parents that are teacher budget, you know, cutting wood for the winter, to being on tour with a band, and all of a sudden I can afford a bottle of wine that was more than fifty dollars. You know, going, oh, this is cool. Seeing all the all the agents and the the lawyers and the fucking promoter and the manager and the fucking accountant all backstage having a nice glass of wine while I'm drinking Bud Light over here. Going, what the fuck's that? Mm. And I want to know. And I grab a glass and tried it and went, this is a new thing. This is something I want to know about. 
And when was the first time you actually went to a... Do you remember the first vineyard you visited while they were doing all that? Um, I want to say it was like 97, I think. 98. It was um, Pegasus Bay in uh, New Zealand. In New Zealand? Yeah. So watching watching the process, watching... No, that was... I think they were doing um, Seb Blanc, I think. It might have been Pinot. I think it was Pinot. But they were destemming. And I was watching the stemming process going, okay, okay, machine. I can afford a machine. And you just thought, one day I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then the wheels started getting into motion. Yeah. Wow. How many people around you are going, Maynard, what the fuck are you doing? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> All. It just seems like such a fucking intensive, complicated endeavor yeah but it's rewarding i mean it's, it's work you're you're grounding there's setup there's cleanup there's logistics like tim and i are like the logistics nazis like we it's we have to there's there's a way to do it to not get in your own way to understand the 16 steps like today dealing with that triangle i kept getting my foot caught up and trying to get the leg around the head mm -hmm. Well, because I was getting in my own way. I didn't, I didn't shift enough to make it so that I wasn't in my own way. Right. In the cellar, I am not in my own way. I'm thinking five steps ahead, and I'm not going to put a thing down in the way that I have to move and add six steps to getting to the next step. And this is a thing that you get better at? With each... I, get, I get better at uh, with, every, with every harvest, but I was already naturally inclined that way as far as logistics. Like, Tetris is my thing. Hmm. Wow. That's wild, because there's nothing like that in my mind that, that I'm fascinated by, that I would want to go and start developing a, a company that makes these things. It seems like it's just so rare that something like a light bulb goes off and you're like, I need a wine press. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So when you, like crack open a bottle of wine today do you ever open one and go i should have waited i mean yeah there's there's those instances or i open up some of my some of the stuff from before and go yeah I, f I fucked that up this is a good bottle it's okay but i know that i could have done better on this bottle and what would you have done to do better well it depends on the grade depends on what i did and like depends on the thing but you know there's adjustments that i've made over the years that have made it so that there's a there's a higher percentage of success for that for that year for what that are wine. those variables it's all depends on the you know it depends on the grape depends how we picked it depends on what it did is it too much oak is it not enough oak you know oak in the casket yeah oak well in, in the ca you know when you're putting stuff in barrel is it too new is there too much flavor i mean imparting too much flavor on the on the wine now, you know going back and tasting some of the stuff i earlier did it's because they were new. I just bought the barrels. So there, there's a lot of oak on some of the earlier wines that I did um, that it's not there now because they, now they're older barrels and no longer are imparting that flavor of oak. So in hindsight, I, I, you know, I can't change it. It's done. Right. But I might have... Aged the barrels? Yeah. Get, get, more, like get a couple new, but, but buy some neutral ones from somebody instead so that like there was just a kiss of oak on it rather than 
a lot of new oak. So there's a company that specializes in creating barrels. No, you just go. You go to some of the other wineries that are that are just cycling through some of their barrels, and you can buy used barrels from reputable wineries. Oh, because I was just going to ask you next. Yeah. Do you reuse your barrels? I use as much, as much as I possibly can because I don't necessarily want the oak influence on the wine. But does the wine that was in the barrel influence future wines? No, you're rinsing it out pretty good. You're not, you know, you're cleaning them out. Steaming. What do you clean it with? Steam. So it's no chemicals, no, no nothing, no. just water. Steam and water, yeah. Wow. How the fuck do you have time for all this? I just don't understand this. Logistical time management. I understand, but I don't understand where it's coming from. There's not. I'm looking at a clock. I'm going. Okay, yeah. this goes around. Yeah. There's twelve of those, and then there's yeah. another twelve. Like, where the fuck is the time? Yeah, organizational skills. Do you ever anticipate doing anything else with this sort of the the amount that's involved? No, I think because like when it comes to like I'm my Tim and I are going to develop probably going to develop a gin. But that will be 100% us just coming up with a label, coming up with a concept, coming up with maybe a recipe, and then handing that to some house. I don't even know what gin is. I know it's an alcohol. I have no idea what you make it out of. It's well, depend. You know, depending on the gin, um, it can be you know grain based. But like, I'm probably going to go more for a molasses based spirit. Molasses. Yeah, you ferment the molasses to give you the spirit. Is that a common thing for gin? And some of my favorite ones are. Uh, a lot of it ends up being more the green, you know, green uh, based. But there's also people that have done honey, honey gin. Yeah. So what gin is like? What what when you're saying gin? I know Jun- it's an alcohol. Ju- juniper is the key ingredient to it. To make it a gin, juniper is one of the botanicals that comes into either during the distillation process or post distillation. Juniper is involved. But you can also do other things and other botanicals and things and to make it a more unique gin. Now, what, do you, what about tequila? Tequila is agave, but I don't really, I don't, I don't know the process on uh, tequila that much. I, I'd like to know, but I think gin is more, it's going to be more accessible to me because it's just the process of, you know, you know the over farming and tearing up land to fucking put in agave. I don't know what that sounds like. Over farming? Yeah, just like I'm not, you know, I've heard rumors of like just fucking tearing through Mexico and fucking up entire landscapes to do with like the agave thing is a it's a controversial subject. Oh, really? I think so. What I was reading about, I'm, I got, I'm trying to like to hurt it, and I was like, ah, I don't want right, to die, I don't want to hear it. about it right now. I got right. other shit to think about. I was reading about the um, the health aspects of uh, tequila. That tequila actually has a probiotic benefit to it, and mm. that it has less sugar in it, mm-hmm. so people find it to be more healthy well. than drinking <laughs> other forms of alcohol. Maybe I mean you know I suppose me not having five of those one night is probably not the smartest thing. Yeah, you know, waking up the next day going not feeling very probiotic. Right. But uh, you know if you exercise restraint, which I'm not sure I know that word, but uh, yeah, restraint. Do you do anything to recover from hangovers specifically? Do you have sort of a routine? Yeah, water, just a lot of water. Uh, the sauna. Um, you know, there's some stuff you'll drink. Electrolytes. Some electrolytes, you know. I do the, the old school uh, British, you know, Baraka if I have to. What's that? It's like a fizzy, like vitamin C, multivitamin fizzy thing you drink with water. You know, it dissolves in the water. So it's just a vitamin sort of? Yeah, yeah. That stuff. Oh, we have some. Yep, there it is. Does that work? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the best thing for a hangover is drinking heavily the night before. Then you'll for sure get a hangover. If you want to avoid the hangover, don't drink heavily the night before. It just is what it is. It just is what it is. So, you know, just exercise restraint and uh, drink a lot of water when you're drinking. Like if I'm going to have the tequilas, I have to force myself to be double-fisted. Mm. Water in one hand, drink in the other, so that way I'm hydrating as I'm drinking. Right. Because so, a lot of it's, de- it's the dehydration that's fucking with you. So that's why the electrolytes in the next morning help. And just, you know, pounding water. During the process. Just During the process and the next day. Resign yourself to the fact you're going to pee a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you have a hard time keeping up with the demand? Because I would imagine you can only grow so much wine. Yeah, yeah, we're doing we're doing great with, with, with respect to that. We're right. We're at the balance of what we can produce and what and what we sell. It's a nice it's a nice spot to be in. So you're like at the but do you, do you feel pressure to expand? We want to we want to expand because a healthy wine region has a healthy bulk wine market. So if I can make wine out of all those grapes, but I only need 80% of it, I sell my 20% of juice to other winemakers uh, just so they can supplement their programs. That's a, that's a healthy winemaking environment. Like the, you're familiar with the, the wine, The Prisoner? No. Okay. You know The Prisoner? Oh, the one that has like the um, mug shots on it? Uh, no, that's no. A, it's got a guy in chains. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a very popular a bottle of wine called the prisoner you know it? for the most part that was all bulk wine so that's a california project that took off that made fucking distributors and people a that's sh- it a shitload of money because it was the person was just basically going around initially to just get bulk wine from all these different houses that had bulk wine that put a cool blend together and it, it was priced perfectly and you know wholesalers made a shitload of money on that thing because it was it was a it was it hit, but it was bulk wine. It wasn't some weirdo like me in a cellar making wine. Hmm. So the that's the person that doesn't actually even own a vineyard. They're just getting there's that, there's a lot of that. Like in California, there's like people that don't own a vineyard, don't even own a winery. They're just like putting together in a house or doing a, a they're producing a blend of wine from from uh, bulk wines. And presenting you a bottle, and which is totally fine because it's as long as it's labeled properly. That's a California red wine. Okay, that's that's fine. California How red do they wine. even know though what it's going to taste like? They're putting together. They're because they're they're only buying it if it goes with the blend. So they're getting samples, 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 blending, and then picking the samples, the blend, and buying that wine in bulk and putting it together. Is this the most you've ever talked about wine in a two and a half hour period? No. I can go. I can go for a long time. I can bore the. Fu- I can put you all to sleep. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by anything that anybody is like deeply interested in. Yeah, and it's clear that you're deeply interested in this. Yeah. So to answer your question, I wouldn't mind expanding the vineyard so that I have flexibility. Because what happens if I get hail, and it takes out half my vineyards? If I have way more vineyards mm. than I need, then I can kind of in that year I can kind of massage what I have. Maybe use bulk wine from the year before to supplement into a blend, but if I'm if I've made all the grapes from the vineyard, we didn't get weather. That wine is always valuable to somebody else to sell as a bulk product. Hail can take out half of your. Oh product. yeah, it fucking it sucks. 
Is I, there a way you can mitigate that? Put tarps hail, over it or something? Hail, hail netting, yeah. We hail have, netting. Yeah, so like it looks like bird netting, but it's hail net. It's so, so it serves two purposes. It uh, combats the hail and birds. Jesus It's expensive Christ. and looks weird. There it is. Hail. Yep. Fuck. Look at that. And that those, just destroys the, everything. The, well, those vines are probably, if they're not dead completely, they're definitely not getting any grapes off those vines for the next three years. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it could very well be that those vines are done. Done, done. I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of commitment that's involved in this. And just I start thinking about my own head, like how I would handle this. I'm like, I, I just, I couldn't. Tequila. Mm. <laughs> Something. Hey, we got hail. Fuck. <sighs> Listen, man, you balance it out. I don't know how you do it. It's, uh, I think uh, we kind of got a better perspective on what's involved for this com- through this conversation, but I don't know how you do it. It's a lot. No, I don't do it by myself. Yeah. I thought, you know, we, you have to delegate and you have to have, you have to trust, trust people. So if somebody wants to buy your wine, what's the best uh, retail outlet? Caduceus.org is our, is our website. You can go buy it off of Caduceus.org and we ship to most states. Uh, we're only in distribution in maybe 12 or 14 states. So you couldn't get it at a grocery store unless we're actually in that state. Texas, we're in, we're in stores here in Texas. Uh, Colorado, you know, like Colorado, Arizona, California. Uh, but the best way to get it is just to order it offline. All right, that's what I'm going to do. And if you want a review, you have to ask uh, Drew Dober because I just sent him some wine. Oh, really? Yeah. You sent some to Drew? Yeah. I love that dude. Yeah, we had we had a bet. When was the last fight, I said, if you win the fight, I'll send you wine. If you lose the fight, you have to wear a shirt in public. A Caduceus shirt? Any shirt. Any shirt. Just well, any fucking shirt. If I was Bill like him, I wouldn't wear shirts in no public shit. either. No oh, shit. I'm so jealous of this fucking... <laughs> that was the Terrence McKinney fight, right? Yeah. That was a wild fight. It was a good fight. Whew, that was a crazy one. That yeah. was that Terrence McKinney is wild. Did that... you see the uh, the Sugar Sean fight? The yes, I did. Yeah. The look on his face at the end, he's. Uh, I was like, he normally runs his mouth pretty good. He's a good old Arizona boy. But like, he had that look on his face like, I... Did I win that? Did I win? Like he's, well, he was very honest. He said, "I'm yeah. gonna have to watch this." Yeah. Afterwards, to see if if I actually won it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were shocked. Like, yeah. Uh, there's a video of Khabib watching the decision, and Khabib's like, "How? How? Yeah. How? How yeah. did he win? How?" Yeah. I. Yeah. I was. I was right there. Fifty. I wasn't. I wasn't sure because I. I thought the other guy won, mm-hmm. but. I think the bigger takeaway is that. <laughs> he was in it. Oh, he was certainly in it against Piotr Jan, who yeah. was a former champion, one of the best yeah. in the division by far, the number one contender. And it was a very close fight. And he definitely hurt Piotr in m- multiple occasions, caught him with that big knee, rocked him. The question is, uh, how much is the takedown worth? How much is control worth? Right. Um, my, my, I assume that when I saw all the takedowns, like then, then Jan won. Because there's a lot of takedowns. Yeah, but takedowns without damage. It's like, what is that val? I mean, and I'm not, now I'm not denying that I thought Piotr Jan won because I did think he won at the end of it. But takedowns without damage versus stand up with damage because Sugar landed more strikes standing, and had big moments. Jan had some big moments too. One big left hand that rocked him. The question is like, how much is the 
how valuable are those takedowns, and how valuable is that top game and that control? And that's that's way out of my, you know. The problem there's right. several problems, but one of the problems is that I feel, and I've said this ad nauseum, that I feel that we were very limited by this ten nine, this ten ten point must scoring system, because hmm. um, someone can win a, a round ten nine, and it can be a very close round, and someone can win win a round clearly, and it could be ten nine. Right, and that doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I feel like yeah. the system is designed for boxing, and, and it's a good system for boxing. I don't think it's a good system for MMA. I think MMA needs a much more comprehensive system. Like if a guy can hold you down with no damage at all for three minutes versus a guy who holds you down and damages you for 30 seconds, what's worth more? You know, what hits you with three or four good hard shots, is that worth more? Or is like the predominance of a like if you you spend the majority of a round on top of a guy, even if you're not damaging him, how much is that worth? What are how much is a leg kick worth? How's how much is a submission worth? Like a submission attempt? I think we need a much more comprehensive system that it doesn't. It's not ten point must. I don't think that's the right system for for MMA. I think it should be a co- completely different system. We just sort of adopted the boxing system. So like. The first round of Aljamain Sterling and T.J. Dillashaw. I mean, that is a fucking dominant round. Like, what is that? Is it a 10-7? Is it a 10-6? I mean, that's an all-Aljamain round. He beat the shit out of T.J. Dillashaw. Dillashaw. Mm-hmm. Took him down, dominated him, took his back, beat the fuck out of him. Like, what's that? How do you score that round? And, you know, how could, you know, how, how could that be better scored with a better system? Right. I think there's, uh, there's definitely room. There's definitely one. I feel like that... That UFC was probably my top five UFCs ever. It was amazing. It was we really watched good. it. Um, Jamie uh, hooked it up from my iPad to a television through an HDMI connection in the O2 Arena. We were in London. We just did the show. We had no idea what happened, luckily. We got off stage, ordered food, and Jamie set up the iPad to a big screen TV that was in the room. We were all in there. It was like 20 of us in there watching. It was Don't fucking Dana. incredible. It was incredible. He'll sue you. No, he wanted me to. He gave me the fucking <laughs> gave me the, the link to it. I have a Fight Pass uh, membership, but that's how we watched it. But it was such a good fight. And then watching Islam and and Charles Oliveira, that was what a fight that was. I, Islam Makachev must have the most incredible squeeze. His his squeeze must be out of this world. Because you see how quick Charles tapped once he clamped that on him. I mean, poof. He had, all, he had all the points covered, and he just like, mm, yeah. done. That dude is on another level. I mean, I am, he is the truth. I am so, I was always impressed with him. But, I mean, I was saying leading up to him getting a shot at the world title, he's the boogeyman of that division. He was the guy that everybody was saying, like, is the, the most dominant of all the contenders. And then when he tapped over, that was a big one. When he tapped Dan Hooker, that was a big one, too. It's like the way he's tapping these guys who are these world-class fighters. He's just fucking running through them. But the fact that he got on Oliveira and mounted him and then submitted him with an arm triangle, head and arm choke like that. Yeah, that's a statement. He submitted the guy with the most submissions in the history of the sport. And the way he did it was just he was so – fucking methodical and dominant and Oliveira tested him i mean he got out of bad positions in the first round he got back up to his feet hit him with some good shots but makachev he's the fucking truth 
you know, there's uh, and interesting that he's going to fight Volkanovski next. That's kind of a crazy thing for Volkanovski to go right up to 55 from 45. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm interested in that because Volkanovski is, he's fucking amazing. I mean, the, the fights with Holloway, especially the last fight with Holloway, we see the evolution of his game and he's gotten so much better. Yeah, it's Don't you have an iPad on stage with you sometimes? Oh, yeah. While, oh, you're, yeah. while you're playing, oh, you're yeah. watching the fights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I want to know. I mean, of course, it's it's fighter-specific. There's yeah, people it's... that I definitely pay attention to more than other fighters just because I want to see what happens because, you know, I want to—I just— I, I, I back these people's career. I just want to know what's going to go on. Mm. Uh, so I'll do, you know— I don't. I don't watch every UFC in 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 that context. But you know, if I know, if I know Thug Rose is fighting, I will, I'll iPad on the stage. I got to see Nate Diaz. I'm gonna have the. I'm gonna have the iPad up there for sure. <laughs> no joke. I think that's hilarious. You're in the middle of a fucking wild concert and you've got an iPad sitting on the stage. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I know it's awful. No, but it's not awful. They're like, "Come on, we're trying to, we're here to watch this, you know, watch the show." I go, "So you get an extra show. You get a thing that's like not just us doing our thing. I'm going to deliver what I'm going to deliver. I'm not going to not sing the song, but I'm going to run over here and you should be laughing at the fact that I have this weird fucking obsession with UFC <laughs> for your show." Do the people know? No, not mostly. They know yeah. now. No, they know now. Yeah. <laughs> What's that weird glow? <laughs> Why does he keep looking down yeah. near where that speaker is? <laughs> so he got like a is he got a teleprompter? Oh, oh no! You're the... Yeah. Get up! Get up! Get up! Get up! Have you ever had a moment where like something shocking happens and you like react? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't remember the fight, but it was I have the video somewhere. I'll send it to you. But I was like <laughs> backstage. Yeah. Was do you ever get a chance to go see many of them live? UFCs. Yeah. Only when it's like maybe Arizona. Yeah. Have you been to some of the ones? Did you go to the one with uh, where um, um, Oliveira fought? Uh, who did he fight? Where he won? Got Justin Gaethje. I missed that. I think I was yeah. out of town for that one. The one I saw uh, was I was screaming like a fucking idiot, man. I was front row, and uh, it was when um, Diaz caught uh, Sterling. Is that Sterling? No, it was he didn't he didn't win. He got him down and he started to showboat. Oh, like, Leon Edwards. Edwards. I'm yeah. like, dude, finish the fucking fight. I'm like, I'm on the I'm on my feet, screaming my fucking head off. Finish it. Like, because you know, and he didn't. But it was well, like, it easier was still, said than done. Yeah, I know. But I was yeah. like, you know, armchair fucking dude on the and down on the ground. Like it was. I was just so excited for him that he caught him and yeah. he, was, he was down for a second. So we should go to one live. Mind. Let's. Go to one live when I'm not working. Okay. We should come see one at the Apex Center. That's the Apex the Center's great. It's yeah. the best. We went to, um, we did a combat sports trifecta. We saw Abu Dhabi. We saw Gordon Ryan compete in Abu Dhabi. Then we went to the UFC and saw Corey Sanhagen and Yong Sedong at the uh, Apex Center. And then we went to see Canelo Alvarez versus Triple G in a boxing fight. It was I, incredible. How do you think Silver's going to do? Against Jake Paul? Well, it's interesting. Jake Paul is a, 
a big, heavy-handed, young guy. And if Jake Paul was just a boxer and not a YouTuber, I think people would take him very seriously. Right. And I think people, for whatever reason, think that he's— I think you have to take him seriously. You have to take him very seriously. He knocked out Tyron Woodley with one punch. He's, he's legit as fuck. Um, Anderson Silva is one of the greatest combat sports athletes of all time, one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. And as a boxer, even though he's 47 years old, he did beat Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., who was a legitimate former world champion, and he knocked out Tito Ortiz to show you that he's got power. Obviously, Tito's not a boxer. I'm curious. I'm curious. I don't yeah, know what's going to happen. It's 47 is yeah, old. Because for me, there's... There's there's the UFC and then there's Anderson Silva. Yeah. So I'm you know I'm very precious about Anderson. Well, I am as, a, as a fan was very fortunate to be able to commentate against uh, uh, while excuse me when Anderson was competing in his prime against the best in the world. When Anderson was in his prime, he was a magician. He was spectacular to see him fight in his prime, like when he knocked out Vitor with that front kick to the face. When, when Anderson beat Chael Sonnen with a triangle in the last round of a fight that he was losing, when he just beat the shit out of him in the rematch, Anderson during his prime was something extraordinary. He really, he, for, people forget because you see him towards the decline after he got his leg broken by Chris Weidman in that fight. He was never really the same again. Mm -mm. But if you remember, like you should look at a fighter and it, in terms of like what they were, what they were when they were at their best, and Anderson at his best was one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time. He was amazing. He was fucking amazing when he was in his prime. Yeah, I've, I had friends that would like watch the fights with me, and, and they're going, "What is he doing? Like he's not doing anything." The first time I go, "He's uh, he is he is testing every single fucking boundary right yeah. now to figure out what he's going to do in the second round, and then he's downloading data." Downloading data. I'm gonna go yeah. like this. See what he does. I'm gonna go like this. See what he does. I'm gonna go like this. See what he does. Okay. He was extraordinary. Remember, and then second round. Boink. I was a fan of his before he ever got to the UFC, and I remember um, there was a betting line when he was fighting Chris Lieben, and I was like, whatever the betting line is, put the fucking house on the Brazilian. I'm like, you have to understand what you're about to see. Like this guy is on many different levels. He is, and he was in his prime because I was watching him compete. He was initially competing in Japan, and then he started competing in London, in uh, in England. In uh, was it Cage Rage? I think it was called. That in that promotion was when he came into his own. That's when he fought Lee Murray. That's when he fought um, uh, George Oliveira. He he was in his prime then, and that's when he came to the UFC. Right after that, I'm like this when he fought Tony Fricklin, and he hit him with this like preposterous upward elbow. He was so good. And I was like, we're getting Anderson like when he came into his own, and that's when he entered into the UFC. So people got to see this, like, just perfect striker. He was so good. But he's 47. You know, that's so when I'm looking at this fight coming yeah. up, I'm like, hmm, I don't know. He's also 47, and I don't know what kind of testing they're doing. Right. That changes everything. That changes the whole world. Because if he's on all sorts of Mexican supplements – then we could see uh, like a turning back of the clock. Extra mustache? Yes, could have an extra <laughs> mustache. He's most likely going to be supplementing. I wouldn't imagine he's not. At 47, I would, wouldn't imagine he's not taking something. 
if you're taking something in your 47, that is not what we think of as 47. That is 47 with a body that responds like a 30-year-old. Is that the case? I don't know. Is that enough? I don't know. I'm interested. I'm in. I'm right. going to watch it. I'm definitely yeah. going to get it. Yeah. You know? Even if it's on stage. <laughs> yeah. Right over here. <laughs> yeah. I didn't do that. I did. I couldn't do that. I couldn't. Yeah. With comedy, I can't do that. True. I can't. But, but afterwards, I'm like, I just got to stay away from my phone and get to the iPad and watch it. Yeah. But it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing time to be a fan of combat sports. There's so much going on. I agree. Yeah, almost too much. It, well, yeah. I love I love that the ADCC has gone to the level that it's gone. Yeah, we saw it at the Thomas and Mac. It was sold out. Twelve thousand people in Vegas. The uh, arena was packed to the gills, and it was nuts. Like yeah. the the energy in the place was incredible. And to be there, like to have it this popular, it's not a coincidence that it's this popular while Gordon Ryan is at his peak who is the greatest jiu-jitsu athlete of all time He's, at 27 years old, which is so crazy to say. Yeah, he looks amazing. And I talked to John before you got there today, mm -hmm. and John and I were talking, and he's like, he's not even in his prime. He's, not, he's like, he's not even at 100%. He's still getting over his stomach issues. He's like, but Gordon Ryan at 70% destroys everybody. Yeah. And he's getting better. It, it, was, it, it was impressive to see because most of the things that he was doing were very simple, methodical, Cutting, cutting off all your fucking exits mm -hmm. and trapping you into a thing. Nothing fancy. Just this. Now this is mine. Now this is mine. Now this is mine. Now this is mine. And you're done. We were talking to him before the finals. We we're hanging out outside. And when he's fighting Nicky Rod in the finals, he said, I'm just going to give him my leg. Because the only way he can win is in a wrestling match. He goes, so I'm just going to give him my leg and make him do jiu-jitsu with me. And so he walks out there and he just kind of gives him his leg. Nikki grabs him, takes him down. Gordon grabs all of his leg, laces it up, taps. And I'm like, holy shit, like he's exactly how he called it. But the way, I mean, he was so calm in the way he described it. I'm just gonna give him my leg. And he did it. Yeah. Have you been to an Abu Dhabi live? Mm -mm. Two years from now, let's go. Okay. Yeah, I think they're gonna do it again in Vegas. If that's the case, let's go. Okay. It'll be worth it. It's yes. it's pretty fucking amazing, and it's pretty amazing as a jujitsu lover to be able to see jujitsu get the attention that it deserves, and to, to see like this fucking rabid fan base, because like basically everyone in the audience trained. So there's like twelve thousand people who are jujitsu trainers and fans and practitioners that are there enjoying that. Yeah, I'm going. I'm All in. right, we I'm got in. a date. All right, two years from now. Yes, Maynard, you're the fucking man. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, give people information on all the stuff that we talked about earlier for everything you got going on, the pay-per-views. and Yeah. Pussifertv.com. Uh, there it is. Just and the there. tour dates. Yeah, we're still going, man. This is uh, it's going to be all the way up to Thanksgiving. There it is. Pussifer.com forward slash tour. Yep. All right, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye, everybody.